Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Please stick around for this introduction because there are a few things I want to tell. You're not going to be hearing my voice a whole lot in this episode because this is the part B of the same episode. You know, I started, I released part A yesterday. That's the part that I cover about the Sand Creek Massacre. Today, I pass the microphone to my friend and master podcaster, Daryl Cooper. So the voice you're going to be hearing today is primarily going to be his. I'm just going to be here at the beginning and at the very end. That's it. So stick around because there are a couple of things I want to tell in addition to, you know, giving thanks to sponsors and all that kind of stuff. The first is I just finished listening to this episode. You know, Daryl just sent it to me and I started listening. I was in the car and I got back home. And it doesn't really happen all that often that I'm at a loss for words. But I'm really blown away by everything that Daryl does. I mean, his uh, delivery, his storytelling abilities are just second to none. You know, the first time I met Daryl, you know, it happened when I started History on Fire, it happened quite a bit that I would receive uh, podcasts from people who are running their shows and most of them I was actually very impressed with the average quality but I remember when I when Daryl sent me the link to his Martyr Made podcast and I started listening like three minutes in my ears perked up and I was like whoa whoa, whoa, let's rewind this a second because this is on a whole other level there's something else going on and so then we became friends eventually and we hung out and you know I know him personally which makes a lot easier to work together on a project and so i mean i knew he was gonna do a good job in tackling this topic when i asked him to play with uh, uh with this particular topic which is a heavy one and you know not everybody would be able to deliver the way you know with the proper attitude that needs to be conserved for something this heavy but my god you know i I really cannot say enough good things about Daryl Cooper. You know, his work is amazing. You guys know I love Dan Carlin to death. I think he's the greatest podcaster in the world. And, well, I don't really see Daryl being second to none here. He's, uh... But, you know, I'll shut up. Because ultimately you guys can listen for yourself. You'll find out for yourself whether his style is to your taste or not. Um, I just want to say that I'm super thankful for Daryl choosing to work with me on this and I'm incredibly pleased with the result. So having said that, 
Let me give thanks to the people who sponsor this show and make this possible. Let's start out with CNN and the series The Kennedys. Now, if you are alive, <laughs> you know the Kennedy name. There's no issue there. So everybody knows the Kennedy name. But what you may not know is their whole story. Watch the new CNN original series, American Dynasties, The Kennedys, Sundays at 9 Eastern on CNN. This series will be narrated by Martin Sheen, who's an amazing actor, if you guys haven't checked out his work. I mean, I remember him from Apocalypse Now, he was just incredible, but he has also been in so many other things. Excellent, excellent actor, good narrating voice. And this series will explore the family history. You know, the, they are really like the Kennedys are one of the most important and famous families in 20th century American history. This series will include the rarely seen home video from the Kennedy archives. It will also cover the lives of the family patriarch Joe Sr., his wife Rose, and their children. It will, of course, cover the golden, you know, trio of Joe Jr., Keek, and Jack, and all their experiences during World War II. The connection between Jack and Bobby, uh, ending up respectively as president and attorney general. That's quite an American dynasty right there. And of course, they are going to dig a little beyond the surface. So, you know, the, the surface of it all, the marriage, for example, between Jack and Jackie, seem like the perfect ideal marriage. Of course, we now know that there was something going on underneath the surface, and the documentary will definitely not shy away from exploring that. And needless to say, it will also touch on the terrible tragedies of both Jack and Bobby's assassinations which if we are to draw parallels with ancient history, their story very much remind me of uh, the Gracchi brothers in ancient Rome. Um, in any case, that's a very fascinating, powerful story. And of course, also the next generation, you know, the heavy expectations that would be placed on the surviving sons of the Kennedy family, you know, Ted Kennedy and John Kennedy Jr. So check it out. This series will premiere on Sunday, March 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also a big thank you to Blue Apron for sponsoring this episode. You guys know I'm rather passionate about Blue Apron, but my passion is overshadowed by the insane degree of insanity that producer and editor of History on Fire, Savannah M., seems to nurture for them. No, I had a really long day at work. I spent probably 13 hours out working. I came back late at night. And uh, by the time I'm here, you know, my daughter is asleep. Savannah probably as well. I can't quite tell right now while I'm recording. But I can't find the Blue Apron delivery that arrived today anywhere. And I have the sneaky suspicion that she cooked all three meals and ate all of them in one sitting, and I wouldn't be entirely surprised because that's how much she likes it. If that is what happened, I will have to have a knife fight with her because it's like, I want my blue apron too. So we shall see. You know, we'll find out whether she'll be around to 
or whether I'll be around because I may lose the knife fight. So there, there may be there no history on fire in the future, or it may be without the presence of Miss Savannah M. We shall see. But in any case, point being, Blue Apron is amazing. Check it out. The Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the United States. I could go on and on about the incredible quality of ingredients or the recipes that I enjoy, the flexibility, but the easiest thing is just to find out for yourself. You know, go check them out on their website. You know, Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com forward slash on fire blue apron a better way to cook also big thank you to my regular sponsors onnit and datsusara uh, speaking of my 13 hour long day and how mentally exhausted i've been this week because i'm juggling way too many things so i'm tired but one thing that helped me out quite a bit today i was about ready to walk into the class at cal state long beach to teach uh, three hours of US history and I was just wiped out I wasn't feeling it so one thing that I has been working fairly steadily for me has been um, trying the alpha brain powder that on it sells I really like it it does wake me up I do feel considerably more present more alert more aware of what I'm doing so if you want to check them out I mean that's just one of the many many products that they uh, that they sell so you can go check them out at www.onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's spelled O-N-N-I-T dot com forward slash history, and you will be getting an automatic discount. And uh, as a faithful companion during my 13-hour day, wear all my, all my Datsusara gear, from wearing a Datsusara hemp hoodie, from uh, I had my computer bag that's also come from Datsusara. I had uh, a fanny pack. Yeah, don't laugh at me, but I like my fanny pack, so leave me alone. Uh, they make lots of great... I mean, their hemp gear is just amazing. So check them out at dsgear.com. Again, that's the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. And if you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. Now, having said all this, I'll pass the microphone to Daryl. So now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. March 16th, 1968. Around 0730 hours local time in Vietnam. Chief Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson and his helicopter crew are arriving on station to prepare for battle. Their mission's supposed to be routine enough, at least for the men in the air it was going to be, as far as these things go. And the morning itself was clear and muggy, and that too was about as ordinary as any morning could be expected to be in Vietnam in 1968. Now, Hugh Thompson's helo would be coming in and joining several others to provide reconnaissance and air gunnery support to the ground forces that were preparing to assault an enemy stronghold in a hot part of the country known to the Americans as Pinkville. The Pinkville region was the birthplace of the Viet Minh and the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong battalion that 
the ground forces would be facing had a fierce reputation. They'd been giving fits to American patrols and positions all over Quang Nai province in that northern part of South Vietnam for months. Now, Thompson's mission was a dangerous one. Flying in low over the rice paddies and treetops, trying to draw fire or, or to flush out the hidden enemy and make him run. It's not really too far to say that they were bait, which is one of the reasons that the helicopters for these missions, you look at them, they're basically just an airframe. They're, they're built to prioritize cost effectiveness so that losses are minimized when they go down, as they very, very often did. It's also why the American pilots running these missions during this stage of the war had just a little more than a 50% chance of making it home. But now Thompson, you know, Chief Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson's a military man from a military family, and March 16, 1968 starts out as just another day at work for him. Taking off and heading toward the, the village, it's going to be under assault. Thompson flies in low, anticipating fire as he approaches the tree line. So his gunners are laying down fire of their own to suppress whatever might be hidden beneath the canopy. But they soon realize that their f- fire is going unanswered, so they pop up a bit above the tree line to take a look around the periphery of the village as the men on the ground, the Americans on the ground, begin to move into the main phase of their attack. On a road below, leading out of the hamlet, there were crowds of civilians leaving the area. You know, women carrying babies with children in tow, a few elderly people, and you know they're carrying goods on carts or sleds or in their arms because it's a market day. And military intelligence had let everyone know that the village was going to be completely empty to civilians because they'd be going off to market. And that was good, Thompson thought. You know, this could be a big fight, so get them out of the way. And satisfied with that sector, Thompson pops up again and veers off and leaves the scene to conduct reconnaissance in another zone. But as they start to look around, something doesn't feel quite right because they expected a real fight. The hamlets down below would be well defended. At least 200 and possibly up to over 400 battle-hardened Viet Cong fighters. But he hadn't taken a single round of enemy fire. Or even seen any sign of hostile resistance up to that point. There were underground tunnel networks all through the province that led to bunkers everywhere so the Viet Cong could be hiding in ambush. For 15 20 minutes maybe they're conducting reconnaissance before they loop back around to the road, to the market road with all the people on it. He and his crew are keeping their eyes peeled for any enemy below. Instead, as Thompson's helicopter approaches the road, looking down, the crew sees all the same people as before. Only now, the people who had been walking to the market were strewn all over the road, covered in blood, dead, or screaming for the dead and from the pain of their own fatal wounds. Thompson looked down and saw dead mothers holding dying babies and old men and women lying in the unnatural postures that they'd happened to fall into and bullets had torn through their bodies. Children who had been smothered and protected by their dead mothers were struggling to get up and they were covered in blood some of it their own, some of it their parents, and they were crying in panic and pain, trying to get their families to wake up. Now, Thompson and his men, they were warriors. Okay, they'd seen combat, and they'd shown up today to fight. They'd shown up to destroy an enemy. But looking down, they had never seen anything 
like the scene that lay before them on the road to market leading out of the village called Milai. What was happening down there? You know, it wasn't supposed to be like this. That could probably serve pretty well as a motto for most American military interventions since the Second World War, but it's sure it's more true about Vietnam than just about anything. Vietnam was the war when, you know, all of our illusions as a country and a people, all of our illusions about ourselves and what the American-led post-war global order was going to be like hit the rocks of reality, and we really haven't been the same ever since. The 1960s were a time of reckoning for the United States, and, you know, depending on your perspective, the country may have been broken during those years, or maybe all the pain and turmoil was just the birth pangs of something new and better, but we changed in those years. We changed maybe more rapidly and profoundly than in any comparable period Maybe, maybe, maybe in our whole history, but certainly I would say since, probably since the Civil War. And if I was forced to point to a moment that kicked off our modern era, I think I'd probably say that the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November of 1963 is about as good of a line as any to divide what feels to most of us like history from what feels to most of us more like the recent past, if that distinction makes any sense. You know, the Second World War feels like history. Even if we still have grandparents who served in it walking around, it feels like history to most of us, people my age at least. Vietnam, it doesn't quite feel historical in the same way, not yet. Even though it started over 50 years ago, and the generals and senior officers who led the Vietnam War, almost to a man, all fought in World War II. As I record this, it's been 17 years since the 9-11 attack in 2001. Well, we first became involved in the Vietnam War just 17 years after the end of World War II. And yet Vietnam feels qualitatively different to us than World War II. A whole di like a different world. A different world from the Korean War, even. The Korean War ended less than a decade before we started sending advisors to Vietnam. I spent some time thinking about that and talking to people about it and trying to figure out exactly why that is. And I don't know, I guess part of it is optics, right? You, you see guys carrying M16s instead of wooden carbines into battle or the fact that we've got lots of color footage of the Vietnam War instead of the grainy black and white that we see from the Second World War. That's part of it. You know, when we watch a Vietnam movie... We hear Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles on the soundtrack, whereas World War II movies might feature, you know, Glenn Miller or Jimmy Dorsey or somebody else none of us have ever heard. And it makes a difference, too, I think, that one war was fought by our parents while the other war was fought by our grandparents, although we're kind of approaching the point now where, uh, you know, where both of them are fading a little bit deeper into our genealogies at this point. And all this stuff makes a difference, but I, it's, I don't think any of it's decisive. I don't think it's the, it's the main difference. There's something else that separates World War II from us, but makes Vietnam feel much more familiar. And I think it has to do with our mentality. 
you know, with our understanding of ourselves and our faith in our institutions and our perspective on the role of America and the West in, in general in the world. You know, the generation that fought World War II, it feels almost unreal to us today, but that generation had very few doubts about any of those things. Despite just emerging from the Great Depression, they still had very few doubts about those things. The Vietnam generation harbored doubts that are still with us today. Doubts that are now the standard. They, they, they color our understanding of our whole history and everything we do. If you make a film set in the modern day with a character who has, you know, that aw shucks kind of unironic faith and love for America that was basically the rule during World War II. Pretty much everybody was like that. If you, if you make a movie that's set in the modern day with a character like that, that character is almost certainly going to be, you know, a figure of ridicule in the movie. Or, or maybe the film itself will be thought of as, you know, pandering to conservatives if, if it's not called just outright fascist propaganda. There, there are plenty of movies that valorize American soldiers in modern warfare, but even they tend to make a they tend to make a point of insisting that you know the men are out there fighting for the man next to them, and it's not really about some unironic faith in the American way. You know, it's 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 not really like that because we couldn't take it seriously today because something changed in us in the 1960s, and maybe some people out there would say, well. Of course we don't make movies like that because today we make things more realistically and nobody really thinks that way in real life. But again, that's a reflection of us being on the other side of this historical divide. Go read or listen to accounts from the men who marched off to Vietnam voluntarily in the early days of the war in 1964, 1965, even into 66. And, you know, they sound like a World War II bond salesman, you know, uh, volunteering to go out and defend freedom and democracy around the world, and they're serious about it. You get up to 1968, 1969, 1970, and we were having to drag otherwise good boys off to a war that they did not believe in for reasons to which they were openly hostile under orders from leaders that they no longer trusted. Something happened in just those few years. And whereas the conflicts that gave rise to the Second World War, there was, clo they, there was closure there. They felt resolved. And they feel resolved to most people today. Affirming a new global order. The conflicts and doubts that were associated with Vietnam were never resolved. And they created, or maybe exposed if you want, the fissures in our society that still divide us to this day. And the Second World War was, in some ways, the last gasp of an old world. You know, like in a movie when you think the villain's dead and it jumps up one last time to make a run at the protagonist, right? And in World War II, you know, we, we know who the protagonists were and we know who the monsters were, you know, to the point that you can be put in jail in many European countries for trying to be a little too nuanced about that question. In Vietnam, we still haven't been able to decide whether we were the good guys or not, and 
that uncertainty has in, introduced a streak of doubt about whether we've ever been the good guys. And that streak of doubt, you know, self-reflection when it's healthy, and, and maybe masochistic self-loathing when it runs out of control, that streak of doubt has in many ways come to define modernity, for us at least. And what happened in those few years that did so much damage to the confidence and self-understanding of the most powerful nation of the dominant culture on the planet? Foreign policy realists or people who like to call themselves that, at least, um, you know, they'll often restrict their interpretation of events to narrow interests having to do with control over vital resources and drawing hard lines of deterrence for other great powers and you know, things like that, things that have to do with, but you get it. And those interests, of course, are present in any conflict, but in a war whose stakes can be measured in dollars and cents or tons of minerals or, 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 or that are about communicating a message to other powers out there, rational calculations can usually be made to determine when the potential benefits no longer justify the costs. You know, when France and the British Empire came into conflict over a colony, neither side felt the need to push the war until one side marched on the other's capital to defend its claim, right? When Athens and Sparta fought the Peloponnesian War, on the other hand, you know, things much more fundamental had been put at stake. And both sides just exhausted themselves trying to ruin and humiliate their enemy. Because they just couldn't give up. There was something too deep at stake, too fundamental. When the parties to a conflict are acting out different mythologies, that's when you get wars that can't be settled at a negotiating table. In the build-up to and engagement in the Vietnam War, the story that the United States was telling itself about what was happening had very little to do with the way the Vietnamese viewed the struggle. And thanks to the advent of new, new forms of Mass media, the Vietnamese version of the story, started to penetrate into the consciousness of America itself, mixing in with the disputes that were already roiling American society, like the black civil rights movement. And it really brought the conflict home in a way that the U.S. hadn't experienced in a hundred years. Now, the U.S. has a long tradition uh, of kind of entering into conflicts late, after the primary belligerents have already been engaged for a while, and when we show up, we bring along our own understanding that is usually very different from the understanding of the primary belligerents. The story we bring along usually has us as the savior coming in to ensure that good triumphs over evil and the right side wins, and you know we tend to take it very personally if the other countries involved don't recognize us that way. If you haven't heard it for some just ridiculous reason. Go check out Dan Carlin's Hardcore History episode, uh, The American Peril. It's about the Spanish-American War around the turn of the 19th century, and he just he does a great job describing how the United States has always had this split personality. I think he calls it a schizophrenic giant. You know, a a as our power grows, we we develop like any other great power to have imperial and expansionary, you know, expansionist interests like any other growing nation. We've got corporations like United Fruit who use their influence to get the government to militarily protect its interests in Latin America, stuff like that. Of course, we have mining operations and ranchers who have their eyes on 
Native American territories and weren't going to let something as trifling as a treaty get in their way. That's always existed. You know, those interests exist in every country with the strength and the room to pursue them. But from the beginning, the U.S. population in general, we've always kind of needed to think of ourselves in a certain way. You know, the Spanish didn't have to tell itself, they didn't have to tell themselves stories about their great intentions when they were making war to maintain control over Cuba or the Philippines. But the U.S. needs a good bedtime story if we're going to intervene and take control of those islands ourselves once we defeated the Spanish in that war. We entered the First World War in 1917, and we didn't make a battlefield impact really until 1918, the last year of the war. Now, other than its, other than the scale of the thing, the First World War was a pretty traditional great power conflict. And, and the war goals of our allies, the French and the British, they were the traditional war goals of colonial empires. The long-standing strategic imperative of the British had been to prevent any big dominant power from emerging on the continent, and so Britain wanted to kneecap the young German empire while it still had the power to do so. The French shared that goal as well, but uh, for good measure they heaped on a desire for revenge for its loss to Germany in the 1871 war. Already in the second year of the war, long before America would have anything to do with it, the French and the British were making very specific plans on how to divide up the German colonies around the world, as, as well as how to break up and divide the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, which had been targeted for destruction. So it's a traditional great power war. You know, and, and it wasn't just the underdeveloped colonies they were looking to control. And one secret agreement with the Russian Empire that never ended up being fulfilled because the Russian Empire collapsed, Turkey itself was supposed to be dismembered and the Russians were supposed to take control of Constantinople which is Istanbul today. And so again, the First World War is a, it's a traditional great power conflict. And then here comes the United States. Three years in, and President Woodrow Wilson with his 14 points talking about the age of colonial domination coming to an end and preaching national liberation for all peoples and demanding a generous peace agreement for Germany. And France and Britain are, are not having any of this. When they failed to take any of our high-minded demands seriously, we just took our ball and went home, you know, very frustrated and determined not to get ourselves involved in another one of these pointless squabbles between European empires that are only looking to advance their own interests. And so as a result, we basically minded our business for the most part as fascism and communism rose in Europe and began to fight for control of that continent. We didn't get involved in the Second World War until Japan attacked us at Pearl Harbor and made the decision for us. Now this time, at the end of the war, we were in a position to dictate terms. We'd liberated France, and Britain owed us more money than it could ever hope to repay while maintaining its global position. American and British forces moving from the West had linked up with the Soviet Union's forces in Central Europe, and Germany was divided into administrative zones controlled by the U.S., Britain, and France, and then East Germany was controlled by the USSR. The city of Berlin, which itself was situated in the middle of Soviet-controlled East Germany, was it, the city itself was also divided up by the four powers in a similar way. So soon after the Second World War ends... Just like after the First World War, the U.S. begins to demobilize its military, but pretty soon it becomes apparent that the Soviet Union is not doing that. They have no intention of liberating the territories they'd conquered, and they were consolidating communist control all over Eastern and Central Europe. 
Stalin had built up the Soviet war machine into a just an absolute juggernaut, and nothing but the threat of retaliation from a nuclear-armed United States could have prevented the Soviets from taking over all of Europe if Stalin had decided to do that. So in February 1946, George Kennan, the top U.S. diplomat in Moscow at the time, he sends out a telegram to Washington that basically gives his appraisal of Soviet intentions and suggesting a strategy to deal with them. The USSR, he wrote, remains a revolutionary state, intent on expanding its influence by spreading revolution all around the world. And Soviet leadership, he said, sees no future, no future in which a permanent peace with the capitalist countries is possible, a sentiment that Stalin himself helped confirm in a speech just a couple weeks later. And so the only good option, said Kennan, was a policy of containment, respecting the internal sovereignty of existing communist states, but opposing communist expansion into any state that's not currently already communist. Contain it. And so also in February of 46, in a speech at, Missouri, at a Missouri college, um, Winston Churchill, you might have heard of him, he played a minor role in the Second World War as well. Winston Churchill comes to the United States and announces to the American public that an iron curtain has fallen all across Europe, locking half of the continent behind the gates of Soviet tyranny. In the East, the Far East, that is, he warned that Asian states and regions were ripe for communist influence and takeover. And he said that, he said that Turkey and Iran, both secular Muslim countries at the time, had, that they had expressed anxiety about Soviet expansion too, and we had to do something. So soon, the Truman administration begins to push back forcefully, and the U.S. takes sides against the communists in the Greek Civil War. Elsewhere, communists, often with aid from the Soviet Union, are making inroads, though, with Mao's rebels holding the field against the Chinese nationalist government and Czechoslovakia eventually submitting to the yoke of communism. The summer of 1948 sees our first direct confrontation with the USSR when the Soviets blockade West Berlin, cutting off the Americans, British, and French from the city. And so a massive ongoing airlift was ordered to supply West Berlin, and finally Stalin lifted the blockade rather than starting a giant war by shooting down American planes. And to many people in the West at the time, that incident helped confirm that the communists could be forced to back down but they had to be confronted. You had to challenge them. But, and they, and, and you, had to, you had to risk it. You had to step up, but they would back down, if only because of the growing U.S. nuclear arsenal. But just two months after the blockade ended, the Soviets successfully tested an atom bomb of their own. One month after that, China falls to the communists. And this, it's hard to describe how shocking and uh, crazy this was at the time. I mean, it, it, well, I mean, if, you, if you know a little bit about the history of China, you just try to wrap your head around what that must have meant. And so everybody is accusing one another. To this day, there's arguments about who's to blame for losing China. The, the thinking went at the time that not enough had been done. Not enough had been done to help the Chinese nationalists against the communists. Just as too little had been done to help the opponents of communism in Russia after the Russian Revolution, and now the two largest countries on the Eurasian landmass are united under the red flag of international communism because we hadn't done enough. Now, that wasn't really true. 
It wasn't really true that they were united under a red banner or any other banner. The Soviets and the Chinese were wary of each other almost from the beginning. But this was how most people saw it in the West at the time. And determined to stop the virus from spreading from China to consume the Korean Peninsula, we went to war in Korea in 1950. And it's a war we don't think or talk all that much about these days, but it was, a, it was a really horrible war. It was terrible. Americans took almost 150,000 casualties. So this is not a minor war. And if you want a taste of how this forgotten war was for our side, there's a PBS documentary um, from their... I think it's from their American Experience series. It's on the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Go check that out. That's not a place you wanted to be. I mean, freezing daytime temperatures. About 30,000 U.S. Allied forces were encircled and attacked by about 120,000 Chinese soldiers who had poured across the border under orders from Mao to annihilate the U.N. force there. You know, again, it was a big war. 150,000 casualties is no joke, especially coming just a few years after the Second World War. But the Chinese took over half a million casualties. And, and that was nothing compared to what the Koreans suffered. I mean, when it was all said and done, the North and South combined suffered at least 600,000 battle casualties and up to 2.5 million civilian casualties. But for the first time in American history, a war ended without an American victory as the country was split in half at the borders that still stand between North and South Korea today. But still, just as with the Berlin blockade, to some the Korean War had been yet another demonstration that, 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 the, that the well of communist fervor was not completely bottomless. You could break them and force them to stop. Its, its advance could be stemmed with enough steadfast opposition. The important thing, many people thought, was to just, you had to remove the incentive for revolution by making it clear that communist expansion anywhere in the world would be opposed and that we would not back down, so you might as well not even try it. That was the idea. But what exactly was even meant by communist expansion? You know, we had a very simplistic view of communism back then. We thought of it as one big world revolution, you know, uh, North Korea, China, the Soviet Union, just all one big thing kind of expanding out from that Eurasian center. And it was not really like that at all. Um, it, I mean, what does Korea have to do with Moscow? And was it appropriate to refer to an indigenous communist revolution as an expansion of anything, even if they are getting some kind of help from Moscow or from China? Is anything really expanding if it's coming from within the country? Holding the line against Russian tanks in Europe is one thing, but you know, should the doctrine of containment mean that we have to take sides against an indigenous movement calling itself communist, however thin and tenuous the thread connecting it to, to, to doctrinaire Marxism-Leninism or to Soviet political control? Well, at the time, the answer was yes. It was a resounding yes. Because if the Soviets were supporting the communist side in these civil wars, and these other local conflicts, at least the thinking went, the Soviets were supporting the communist sides, and we stood by and did nothing, then one by one countries around the world would fall, and by the time the danger was acute enough to force us to act, the communists would be too strong to oppose. And, and again, I don't want to 
It's necessary to be clear about the terrifying nature of the communist threat. It was very real. The Soviet Union had slaughtered and enslaved tens of millions of its own people as policy during peacetime. Wherever communism spread, unbelievably, uh, just unbelievable brutality followed in its wake. Under Mao, China would kill maybe 50 million people. And so the strategists at the time had to deal with the world as it was with the information that they had. And a lot of the information that they had regarding communism was truly horrifying. And I do want to be very clear about that. The thing is, though, that the U.S. was, the US was very new to the empire business. You know, we dabbled a bit in the Western Hemisphere, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. We dabbled in the Philippines, a few places here and there. But the idea that we needed a detailed strategy for the Korean Peninsula or for Indochina, that was new to American political consciousness. You know, we didn't have a big sort of bureaucratic infrastructure and and, and built up generational expertise to kind of deal with this stuff. We didn't have... Uh, strong intelligence networks all over the world to keep us apprised. We just didn't have any of that stuff. Our allies, on the other hand, in particular Britain, but also France, they'd had long-standing imperial interests all over the world. Very savvy countries. India was still under British control until 1947. France still ruled Indochina, the region that included Vietnam. And so it was all over Asia, Africa, the Middle East. I mean, you know, these were dead empires walking at the time, bankrupt and exhausted from a generation of fratricidal war. But again, they were very savvy. A long, long, long time of operating all over the world. They're much more savvy than the U.S. in many ways at the time. And so they looked to the U.S. to help preserve their interests. Because things were changing in what would start to be called the third world, those unaligned, undeveloped countries that had labored and suffered and in various ways sometimes benefited from European colonization for so long. That illusion of difference between direct colonial rule and rule by proxy through a local minority or through a subservient dictator, that distinction began to melt away and people began to see through it. They began to rise up, sometimes politically, sometimes violently. All over the world, people were beginning to wake up and demand recognition and independence. And as it started to happen, you'd you'd begin to see a familiar pattern of development in in these political challenges and these budding insurgencies. It's similar in many ways, not in the details, but in the dynamics. It's similar in many ways to what we saw with the Arab Spring starting in 2011. In the beginning, challenges to the status quo were being driven by all kinds of people with all types of different ideas about where they'd like to see things end up. But over time, especially in the face of strict state repression or civil war, the groups that are, it's the groups that already have a good on the ground infrastructure and who are the best organized and funded and who can gain credibility through outside recognition and support. Those groups are the ones that remain standing when everything shakes out. And the anti-colonial movement this tended to be the communists. In the Arab Spring, it tended to be the Islamist hardliners. But the dynamic was very similar. You know, College kids can take to the streets and maybe crack open some fissures in the status quo, 
But when the pavement starts getting slick with blood, you're going to need groups with access to weapons and supplies and expertise and places to hide. People who are used to operating in the underground economy, who know how to organize and recruit for a persistent insurgency over time, and, 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 and who have enough ideological commitment to do the very hard things required for an insurgency to survive and win. And one of the things that really compromised the global efforts of the U.S. and its allies during the Cold War was that the Soviets were able to, they were able to employ a very, very effective narrative for their propaganda. You know, the communists were able to say to the Third World, hey, look, we thought we were fighting World War II to defeat fascism. We did fight to, to defeat fascism. But look at the U.S. now, allied to Germany and Japan allowing much of their old bureaucracies to remain in place. And on top of that, the U.S. is allied to the colonial powers like France and Britain, who even now are fighting against your national liberation, as the French and the British were in many places. Well, we, the communists, we were allied with them to defeat fascism and liberate all the peoples of the world, and we're still doing that. But now they're the fascists. They're allied to, France, uh, to Germany, and they're allied to Japan. They're allied to the colonialists. Now they're the fascists, and we're here to help liberate you from them. It was a powerful propaganda, uh, very difficult to counter in many ways. And in the places where it was applied, you know, if you didn't necessarily pay too much attention to what communist liberation ended up looking like after it happened, it was very difficult propaganda to counter. You know, looking back, we might think that our magnanimity in helping to rebuild Germany and Japan was wise and moral, and I think it certainly was. But at the time, it's very hard to justify it to people who had just gotten finished suffering under the boots of the Nazis of the Imperial Japanese. You know, and it was true that France and Britain were still repressing, sometimes very brutally, liberation movements anywhere in the world that they could still afford to do it. An ugly, ugly urban war of murder and reprisal between France and the Algerian nationalist insurgents would create 300,000 casualties, displace over 2 million Algerians. Indochina had been liberated from Japan after the Second World War, only to be reclaimed as a possession by France, and they immediately start fighting to hold on to it. That fight would kill maybe a quarter million Vietnamese. When the Shah of Iran was pushed aside by a socialist politician who would try to nationalize British oil assets in the country, the American CIA helped restore the Shah, in part to prevent likely British military action against Iran. And this was justified by the claim that inaction would have left Iran to fall into the Soviet orbit. It's the chorus of the Cold War. It's just... It's just, this is the dynamic. This is how it goes. For years, this is how it works. The European colonial empires had been weakened irreparably by World War II. And the peoples of the Third World were waking up and demanding independence. And in most cases outside the Middle East, communists would emerge as the most effective and durable insurgents. And eventually they'd swallow up the rest of the independence movement in those countries. The Middle East was a little bit different because, you know, the, the, the official atheism of communism obviously ran counter to the Islamic principles in that region. But many places like Vietnam, the communists eventually just swallowed up the rest of the movement, pretty much became synonymous with the movement for decolonization, anti-imperialism, and national liberation. 
And again, this was very powerful propaganda that the communists pumped out all over the world. So despite the abject repression of communist totalitarianism, many people began, they really did begin to see the United States very differently from how the U.S. envisioned itself acting in the world. That's how you get yourself into trouble. And I have to admit, I've got a certain amount of resentment toward the French and the British during this period, you know. You know, like I said, they were very savvy operators on the world stage. And as their empires were collapsing, they looked to the U.S. to help shore them up wherever they could. And the way it often went was they'd come smash down on some local independence movement until only the communists were left. And then they look over to us and say, America, look, we're fighting the communists over here. You don't want this country to fall to the Reds, do you? And I don't want to be too naive about it. Obviously, there are were a lot of people in American leadership, and many of them were just as informed and cynical as the coldest official in the British Foreign Office. But the political reality in the U.S., it was such that while people liked the idea of defending free people from communist tyranny, you were not going to move the American people to do anything that made them feel like they might be the tyrants. It just wasn't going to happen. And so then this walks us into Vietnam. This is exactly how it went down in Vietnam. The French framed their war in Vietnam, which had begun immediately after the Second World War ended, as a crusade against communism. And even though by the early 1950s this propaganda was even wearing off with their own people, with the French people, this was the only way to get help from the Americans. And so American advisors first arrived to aid the French and the South Vietnamese in 1950. Most people don't know the first Americans got to Vietnam in 1950, but that's when, that's when they arrived. It was just when we were entering the Korean War. And already by that time, the U.S. was providing most of the funding for the French War in Vietnam. In 1954, a French outpost at a place called Dien Bien Phu, in the far north of the country, was surrounded and overrun by the North Vietnamese Army under the leadership of General Vo Nguyen Jap. He's one of my... One of my military heroes, for sure. Um, he's got a, there's a book out called The Military Art of People's War. It's a collection of his writings, and it's a, it's a great book. It should be on everyone's shelf who's interested in military history. He's one of the great military men of the 20th century, for sure. The French had already been losing the war of attrition slowly. They had suffered tens of thousands of casualties by this time. But this defeat at Dien Bien Phu, I mean, it delivered a shock that is really hard to convey to people today. It would be hard for us to think of a modern equivalent to, you know, losing a battle or a war to the Germans. That was one thing. Uh, when it came to fighting the local populations of their colonies around the world, the European powers were, they were not used to losing. I mean, they might have a small unit get, you know, surrounded in, in, in an encampment or something and get wiped out. And then they'd come in and take their revenge, but, you know, they, they were used to engagements like the Battle of Omdurman, where about 8,000 British soldiers and their local allies defeated over 50,000 Sudanese fighters, killing, wounding, or capturing 30,000 of the enemy and only losing a few dozen British men. And understand how it felt for over 11,000 French soldiers to surrender and be marched into captivity by a local force of an undeveloped country like Vietnam, you'd almost have to imagine 11,000 U.S. Marines laying down their arms 
and being taken prisoner by ISIS or the Taliban. And that's not to compare ISIS or the Taliban to the North Vietnamese in character, but just insofar it was insofar as it was something that seemed impossible and just can't happen. And more than that, the fact that it did happen, you know, that, that it signified a fundamental change in the world that boded very ill for the non-communist West. Well, after Dien Bien Phu, again, this is in 1954, the French have had enough. This is when the problems are starting to crop up in Algeria. They've got a whole new issue, much closer to their near abroad. So they give up in Vietnam, begin to evacuate Indochina altogether. There are only a few American advisors left in the country at this point to provide support to the South Vietnamese government, and that's it. After the French left, the communists consolidated control of the north of the country while low-grade and disorganized insurgency in the south began to harden into something much more dangerous for the South Vietnamese government. In 1960, after a few years of this insurgency, the National Liberation Front, the NLF, known better in the West as the VC, the Viet Cong. Uh, it was formed in the South to unite all the disparate movements and militias that had risen up in opposition to the corrupt and inept Vietnamese government. Now, around the world at this time, as all this is starting to build up, around the world, communism just seems to people to be advancing almost everywhere. In 1955, the Soviet Union forms the Warsaw Pact, the military alliance to counter NATO. All of a sudden, there were borders all over Europe that were tripwires for the next world war, this time with nuclear implications. In October 1956, the Soviets just brutally crushed an uprising against the communist government in Hungary as the Hungarian rebels, the poor Hungarian rebels who had taken over uh, central Budapest, they were on the radio begging to the West to come help them, and they got no help, and the Soviets just crushed them. At the same time that that's going on, Britain and France conspire with the Israelis to create a pretext for them to invade Egypt and seize control of the Suez Canal, something we didn't know about at the time, the Americans didn't know about, uh, but then they were forced to retreat under American pressure because the Soviets offered aid to the Egyptian government, and that became a flashpoint. And then in 1957, the Soviets launched the Sputnik satellite, the first man-made object ever to be launched into orbit around the Earth. And all at once, it dawned on the world that if it was possible to launch a satellite into space, it would very soon be possible to put a nuclear warhead on one of those rockets and send it to Washington, D.C. In 1959, just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, Cuba falls to the charismatic revolutionary Fidel Castro who declares for communism and allies himself with the Soviet Union. In April of 1961, just three months after John F. Kennedy assumes office as president, the young and you know, inexperienced Kennedy is talked into going forward with a pre-existing plan to arm and to deliver a force of Cuban dissidents back onto the island to start an anti-communist uprising and take the island back. But he refused to provide any direct military support or, or, or air power support for the invasion. And the invasion is just a complete catastrophe. Kennedy's generals and the CIA, whose baby this whole thing was, this is the Bay of Pigs invasion. And the generals and the CIA who were so excited about this, they blamed Kennedy for failing to provide adequate support to the Cuban exiles. 
And Kennedy resented having been talked into the whole thing in the first place. Four months later, in August 1961, the Soviets erect the Berlin Wall to keep Western intelligence agents out and to keep people trying to escape from their tyranny inside. And that Berlin Wall, it became a potent symbol of a world torn in two, where every nation was a potential battleground, expected to declare for one side or the other, and the stakes were total victory or total defeat. The next year, in October 1962, the Soviets attempt to install nuclear missile batteries in Cuba, and the U.S. finds out about it, and the two powers come so close to nuclear war that senior U.S. government officials or right later on, that they were going to sleep each night with profound doubts about whether they were going to wake up. And they were dead serious. There's a lot of pressure. A year later, November 1963, JFK is assassinated by a gunman in Dallas, Texas, and replaced by his vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. The reason I'm going through all this Cold War history, I guess there's two reasons. The first reason is... I'm procrastinating. I don't really want to talk about the subject of this episode because it's because it's horrible and uh, I have not enjoyed reading about it or listening to people tell their stories about it. Um, you know, I read a lot of dark stuff for some reason. Um, maybe it has to do with what I talked about earlier that you know these people uh, from the Vietnam era are a lot easier for us to relate to. Uh, but it's you know it's done some damage. It's done some damage. It's a dark story, and I'm putting it off a little bit. Um, but also, I, I, I'm trying to give you a sense of how fast, how rapidly everything is going. You know, everything is moving very, very quickly. You know, 1957, the first ever satellite is launched. Five years later, the Soviets are attempting to install mid-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. Almost every few months, it seems like the communists are taking another bite out of the developing world, and the best we could hope for was to fight them to a stalemate, as we'd done in Korea. You know, if you don't understand this, it's hard to grasp how we ever ended up so deeply involved in a place like Vietnam, where, from the very beginning, we were reluctant to send ground forces. We knew from the very, very beginning it was a bad idea. And where already in 1964, 1965... Uh, when LB, certainly by 1965, when LBJ is ordering the first major American force of 150,000 troops to invade the country, you know there are White House tapes of American leaders. I'm talking the main players, the president, the secretary of defense in charge of the war, who had very, very serious doubts about whether the war could be won. This is in 1965. You know, in the name of opposing the expansion of communism, we had effectively taken over for one side in the Civil War. And we found ourselves opposed by an enemy that, although, yes, they were communist in their heads, you know, they spouted communist ideology, and they, they you know, it was performative as well. Uh, you know, they were communists in their heads. They were Vietnamese in their hearts. And, you know, they, they were not fighting for the expansion of Marxism. They were fighting to expel yet another foreign occupier from their country. And we walked into that, not really knowing what we were getting ourselves into. Especially not, especially not knowing what we were getting ourselves into as far as who we'd be facing. Because the Vietnamese could fight. Something that gets lost a lot uh, 
in the modern day. The Vietnamese could fight. Make no mistake about it. A small country like Vietnam didn't hold off Chinese domination for centuries by being compromising about its independence. Vietnam had a long tradition of mobilizing basically the entire able-bodied population in times of acute need when foreigners stepped foot on their soil. The French had established full control over Indochina in 1885. During World War II, the French had been defeated by Germany, and so they were allowed to maintain administrative control over the country during the Japanese occupation. When the Japanese were defeated in 1945, and then the French were driven out in 1954, suddenly the Americans start to appear, and to most of the Vietnamese, we just seem like the next imperialist nation standing in the way of their national liberation. And from their perspective, that's exactly what we were. And they were going to fight us as if that's what we were. And yet if you read the diaries and the letters home from the American soldiers sent to that country in the early years, they believed, they truly believed, that they would be serving their country and risking their lives to go liberate the people of Vietnam from the scourge of communism. They really believed it. From that first decision to send 150,000 American soldiers to directly engage the Vietnamese communists on behalf of the faltering South Vietnamese government, just a, a terrible dynamic kind of took over in which domestic political considerations dictated a continued escalation of the war in Vietnam. And it seemed like no politician, it just seems like no politician had the guts or the power or the room to operate to stop it. It's hard to describe. It really is. But... Well, you know, once a president decides to go to war, you're in a war. And no politician wants to be the guy who loses a war. And if you're faced with a decision to increase troop levels and send some more people over there and hope you win, maybe at least you extend the war until you get out of office and the next guy can lose it. You can blame him. It's a, it's a, it's a drawback of the way our political system works, I suppose. And so the increase of... 150,000 troops in 1965 by LBJ brought the total troop numbers up to around 185,000. In 1966, we would have about 385,000 troops in the country. And by 1967, almost half a million Americans were in Vietnam. It was at the end of that year, in December 1967, that Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment, 11th Brigade, 23rd ID, under the command of Captain Ernest Medina, arrived in the country. Radio man Fred Widmer proudly describes himself and his comrades in Charlie Company as, quote, a cross-section of just your basic young people at that point in time. We are from all over the country, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Black, White, Mexican. There was nothing special about us. We were just your common, ordinary teens. Growing up with parents that came from World War II and from the Korean War, being exposed to their generations, yeah, you basically felt it was your duty to go ahead and go to war. And these were men that believed in the cause for which they were being sent to fight. Median age was 21, 22. Most of them were 18 to 22 years old. They'd arrived in Hawaii in December 1966 to begin their training under their company commander, Ernest Medina. Captain Ernest Medina. When they got to Hawaii, you know, for many of them, it was the first time ever being so far away from home. And 
You're just overwhelmed by the beauty and ease of it. And the military probably seemed pretty awesome at the time, but Medina very quickly knocked that notion out of their head and reminded them why they were there. He put them to work. Uh, you know, the Vietnam generation was made up of the sons of fathers who'd been greeted as the liberating heroes of Paris and had responded to the attack on Pearl Harbor by fighting their way to Tokyo and bringing Japan to its knees. And so, you know, it's a hard thing growing up in the shadow of great men. And this was the next generation's chance to be heroes in their own right. This is what you hear again and again and again, not just from Charlie Company, but but from just men all over who fought in Vietnam. Now, their company commander, Captain Medina, revered by his soldiers. He, he was really loved by them. He drove them hard. He was an aggressive overachiever, uh, graduating fourth out of 200 or so in his class at Officer Candidate School. He earned the name Mad Dog Medina within his command. And, and again, he was, a, he was a hard man. He was a tough guy. He was tough on his men. He expected a lot from Charlie Company, but he led by example, and he, he really tried to instill in them the aggressive attitude that had helped him rise through the ranks. You know, he was a Mexican-American uh, at a time when the Army was really still largely led by an Anglo officer corps, and you know, for him to rise to captain and company commander was a real achievement. He's a hard charger in military parlance. One of his men said, quote, The motto of the Army was, follow me. And Medina was the type of individual you'd follow anywhere and do anything for. You know, Medina wasn't just there to do a job. He he wanted Charlie Company to be something really special. You get a lot of uh, a lot of commanders that are this way with their units, where you know, they get something in them that they want to. Uh, you know, they, they they maybe want a little bit of a signature. You know, when the war's over, if your unit really performs, people remember that in the military. And so he, he got his men calling themselves the Death Dealers. And in preparation for Vietnam, they would collect aces of spades from playing card decks and they'd stack them up and bring them with them because they were going to leave them on the bodies of the VC that they expected to kill. So everybody would, would know, you know and learn to fear and respect the Death Dealers of Charlie Company. In charge of Charlie Company's first platoon was a lieutenant named William Calley. And Calley's... This is a cliche by now, but Callie's a hard guy to describe. Um, when people try, they usually resort to what I'm doing right now, which is referring to just how nondescript he was. Um, he was 24 years old when Charlie Company left for Vietnam. He was small and thin, 5'3", maybe 130 pounds. A uh, white guy from a typical middle-class family in Florida. He hadn't been really popular in high school, but not unpopular. He got along. Um, classmates did remember him. as always looking for ways to get the approval of his teachers, though. He'd volunteer to stand up and turn pages for them when they were reading to class, or he would volunteer to stay after and sweep up or clean chalkboards. So he was kind of a teacher's pet. After high school, he kind of floated around for a bit, got in some college, worked a few different jobs, and finally joined the Army. And... Once he got into the Army, he seemed to have an experience that a lot of people, especially a lot of men like him, have when they join the military. And they're given a rank and a uniform. And in his case, he was an officer, so he's given authority over other men. A young man without a strong sense of who he is or what he's supposed to be doing. You know, an empty vessel waiting for somebody to fill him up with an identity that makes him feel like a real person, maybe for the first time in his life. 
You put someone like that in a snappy uniform and tell him he's part of an institution with a storied history and you know, he's a representative of that institution, a defender of his country, a leader of men, you know. It, it, you know, again, if you're not into that stuff, it sounds corny, but I can tell you it has a profound effect on a lot of people. And if you've ever known somebody who uh, went off to the military, a lot of people have, uh, you might know from experience or by association when you've watched a boy leave, leave for boot camp and a man come back maybe just a couple months later. It's a big change for a lot of people. And the Army, though, um, while Cowley got an identity out of it, he really didn't get the respect that he was hoping for from either his men or the leaders to whom he was responsible. In contrast to Medina, Cowley finished in the bottom quarter of his class at Officer Candidate School. In the field, men who served with him complained that he couldn't even read a map or a compass properly. He just couldn't. In, he just There are people like this in every branch of the service, you know, every rank, at least up to junior officers, just some people who just can't get it together and really don't belong. And Callie probably didn't belong. Well, probably, I guess, well, that'll prove to be the understatement of the, of the podcast, but I'll go ahead and leave it in. You know, the men that were under him and Captain Medina above him, they, they all saw him as a suck up. And that's not something you want to be seen as in the military. Um, they mocked him and resented him for it. You know, Callie was one of those unfortunate people who's disliked by other men and is never quite able to understand why. So he responds by trying even harder to ingratiate himself with Medina and by pulling rank on his men. Huge no-no. Um, but he was an officer, and he had to assert his authority, but he didn't really know how, and he wasn't respected, and he knew it. You know, how could he not know it? Medina would often just humiliate him and undermine him in front of his own men, insult him in front of his own people. So anyway, after their training's complete, Charlie Company leaves for Vietnam. They arrive in Quang Nai province in the northern part of South Vietnam in December 1967. And for the first month or so, it's all good. I mean, they saw no signs of the war at all. And they spend their time swimming and playing football on the beach and you know, hamming it up with the women and children, elderly Vietnamese in the nearby villages. Um, there's videos of it. There's, they're all smiles. They're very obviously relaxed and having a good time. Um, Fred Widmer, the radio man for Charlie Company, he, he described a typical day. He said, you go into a village, set up a perimeter. Medics would come in and treat the civilians, and we'd sit there and play with the kids. There was nothing else to do, so we always had fun with the kids. A Vietnamese described it from the other side, saying, When I was young, I saw American soldiers. Whenever they came, they would gather up everyone. They would bring cake and candy for the children. Everyone would have some, and then they'd let us go home. Yeah, again, there's video footage, and uh, you can go watch, and documentaries and stuff, and they're just they're what you'd think. Young guys, big smiles, horsing around, just... Obviously getting a big kick out of making the kids happy and being the big, big heroes, bringing them treats, stuff like that. And you know, just playing the American hero. This is just kind of part of why they came to go to war. A survivor of their visit to My Lai just a few months later remembered, I never would have imagined, never would have thought Americans would kill us. When my children came home and asked if American soldiers would kill us, I said no. 
Americans don't kill. And so about a month after they arrive, on the last day of January, the Vietnamese communists launch a massive offensive all over South Vietnam. For months, they'd been infiltrating the South, disguised as civilians and sometimes even disguised as women, hiding AK-47s and grenades and things under their clothing. Once they got into the South, they organized the Southern militias, they hid weapons and supplies, and they they got in position for what would become known as the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive was eventually beaten back by the South Vietnamese Army and American forces, but the scale and ferocity of it, I mean, they attacked almost every uh, every major uh, position in South Vietnam all at once. It was a really incredible achievement, even though it, it didn't work out in a, in a military sense for the North Vietnamese. Um, yeah, again, it, it really shook American forces. It really shook the leaders and the public back home. The U.S. Embassy in Saigon had been occupied for a while. Uh, taken over and occupied. Uh, towns and city centers had been seized and had to be taken back. South Vietnamese officials in those cities were in, in towns were rounded up and shot. And and what really shook them is that the attack had just seemed to come out of nowhere, as if thousands of civilians had suddenly thrown off their outer garments and just sprung into battle. And so as the offensive starts to lose steam, the Americans want to get back out there and retaliate. I mean, they they, they, they were caught off guard, they, they had retaken uh, the initiative, the tactical initiative. Now they wanted to get out there and retake the strategic initiative. You know, they, they regain control of the countryside and get also to get a little bit of revenge. They wanted to show the South Vietnamese and the American public that far from being a demonstration of communist strength, that this attack had just been another battle of the bulge, a desperate last-ditch attempt where the communists just threw everything they had at, at, at the Americans and the, and the South Vietnamese just to try to make something happen as their last bit of strength and morale faded. That's what the Americans wanted to show. So they got out there and they launched offensives, counteroffensives of our own all over the place. And so in February, Charlie Company is assigned a task force Barker, collection of units thrown together whose mission would be to break down the communist infrastructure and reestablish dominance in Quang Nai province. Now, Quang Nai wasn't just some random province. It was, first of all, it was in the northern part of South Vietnam, near the demilitarized zone. So it's, it's, very, it's, it's up into a place where it's a lot of communist activity. And on top of that, Quang Nai had a 300-year-old, well-earned reputation for despising and resisting foreign occupiers, even more so than other regions in the country. It was the home of the Viet Cong 48th Local Force Battalion, a battle-hardened force of tough veteran fighters who had been in the game since before the French had been driven out in 54. One general mentioned that you'd find fathers, brothers, mothers, grandmothers, anybody with two good legs contributing to the resistance in one way or another. Pinkville, a region in Quang Nai, was marked as a high-density population area on the map, but you might have been fooled if you were looking at it flying from the, uh, you know, flying over it all from the air. Because it didn't look so crowded, but underground was a different story. From Howard Jones' book on My Lai, he says, quote, Over the next several days, U.S. forces began to grasp the enormity of their problem in Pinkville, while exploring a large and intricate tunnel network connecting rooms 20 feet below the surface. They discovered an entire underground medical dispensary, 
The enemy had bricked up the tunnels and rooms, creating a fully fortified subterranean headquarters. It was clear that the Viet Cong's 48th Local Force Battalion had been there for many years and intended to stay many more. Leading up to the operation, the Americans dropped leaflets informing the Vietnamese people of their two options, to either leave the area and live as Vietnamese nationals or stay where they were and die as Viet Cong sympathizers. Unfortunately, the Americans failed to take into account that the vast majority of the Vietnamese peasants were illiterate so that they couldn't read those leaflets. Nevertheless, the message having been delivered, large portions of Quang Nai province were designated free fire zones, which meant that they were declared to be under VC control and that strategic bombing and artillery fire was permitted in and around the villages there. So you got to understand that Vietnam was not a war where the goal was to march on and seize the enemy capital. It had been decided early on that marching on Hanoi might provoke the Chinese to enter the war in force, as they had in Korea, and that was not something that we wanted. So American leaders instead embarked on a war of attrition, with the straightforward goal of simply killing more enemy than the enemy could possibly replace, to force the enemy to understand that U.S. firepower was simply too overwhelming and victory was just impossible, and that they would just be forced to the table to negotiate a settlement. That, that was the war plan, basically. Kill them. Kill, kill, kill. American f- commanders at the time were very fond of quoting Mao's saying that gorillas are the fish, gorillas are the fish, and the people are the sea. And instead of just chasing the fish around in their own habitat, our strategy was simply to drain the sea. And so the attitude of the villagers that Charlie Company began to run into now was very different from the ones they were playing with on the beaches. The villagers they were running into now had been victims of American bombing and other offensive actions, and, and yeah, they had a very different attitude. Charlie Company had come to Vietnam hoping to be heroes, and they expected to be greeted as liberators like their fathers had been in France, but... The villagers they saw now met them with suspicion verging on terror and barely concealed hostility and hatred. After being assigned to Task Force Barker, Charlie Company starts pulling regular patrols, and almost immediately they start getting picked off. I mean, Vietnam... It's one of the things that I've... One of the things you pick up from watching movies and reading about it, but until you really dig into it, you just can't understand how awful it was to be in Vietnam. Uh, Just as far as the way we fought the war. It was a war like no other that Americans have fought. You know, it's a really terrifying kind of war that honestly I wouldn't want anything to do with. Um, You know, again, remember, we're not trying to seize territory or capture cities or railroad stations or anything like that. We are trying to kill as many enemy as possible until they run out of fighters and are forced to negotiate. And so the job of your typical army grunt was, to put it very simply, to go walking through a jungle filled with mines and booby traps and snipers and ambushes until they find the enemy or the enemy finds them. And when they find each other, go get them. You know, there are no battle lines. The enemy is everywhere and nowhere. You might be walking through the forest, you know, hacking through thick foliage, fearing with every step you take that you'd be the one to 
lose a foot or set off a booby trap this time. And it's just a roll of the dice. You're walking through, hacking through the jungle, hoping you don't step on a mine or set off a booby trap. Suddenly the enemy announces himself when the belly of the man next to you blows out through his back from the force of a sniper bullet. And he hits the ground. And you all drop and take cover, trying to get your bearings and even figure out where the shot came from, because you can't tell. When you hear another one, and it drops another man that you've been training and drinking and joking with and, and trading stories with for the last year. And now he drops. And so you start spraying suppressive fire in the direction of the shot, at least you think the direction of the shot, and... You start to get each other together to try to prepare to assault the enemy position, but as soon as you move forward, someone steps on a mine. Boom! By the time you finally make your way over to where the shots had come from, the enemy's long gone, melted away into the jungle. It's like fighting ghosts. It's stressful, incredibly frustrating. Never getting your hands on the people that every day are killing and maiming your friends. Never even seeing them. Soldiers from Charlie Company, and, and, and you hear this from other Vietnam vets as well, they talk about how in the middle of taking sniper fire sometimes, they would get so just crazy with frustration and stress that they would jump up and expose themselves and start screaming at the enemy who was hiding out there to come out and fight, come out and fight. You know, And they would, they'd talk about how they would imagine that the enemy was out there in the bush just laughing at you, looking around terrified and shooting in the wrong direction and screaming at the air like a crazy person. The first man killed in Charlie Company was a popular young soldier named Bill Weber, dropped by a sniper after Lieutenant Calley had quite foolishly ordered his men to ford a river out into open ground. And he didn't die easy. He died very, very hard, and the men blamed Calley for it, and it was probably Calley's fault. Those type of things happen in war. You have to move past it, but uh, it was a pattern with him. And for weeks, this is how it went getting picked off in ones and twos, never laying eyes on the 48th VC battalion that they knew was out there somewhere. And men, you know, not everybody, but I think as a general rule, men seem to be able to, I don't mean men as opposed to women, I mean people, but seem to be able to, people kind, <laughs> seem to be able to handle acute pressure you know, just sharp, acute pressure. There's something happening right now. you got to deal with it. Uh, a lot of people seem to be able to actually handle themselves fairly well in those cases. People that you wouldn't expect often respond admirably when everything is put on the line. But this is different. This is that, that ambient danger that's just always there. Chronic stress from playing sniper roulette every day. Having to worry... Every time you set your foot down, if this would be the step that kills you, or if this would be the step that kills you, or this one, you know, we don't know what it's like to have to be consciously aware of, to, to think consciously about whether the spot we're about to sit down is safe. And then, uh, is it safe? Is it, 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 oh, it's safe. And once we've sat down, we got to put our feet somewhere. And should I put my feet there? Or over there, because choosing wrong, that might be it. That might be the end. Because you've seen it be the end for people that you loved and cared about many times. You know, I got to thinking about how 
One of the differences between a pet and a wild animal, or a person and a wild animal, is that a wild animal never really feels safe. Not once it's full-grown and responsible for itself. It can feel more or less safe, but it never feels secure. Like, really secure. When we sit down in our living room, we're safe enough that we really don't think about it. You don't, I mean, if you live in America and most places and you have a normal life, you don't, you don't think about it. And if you don't feel safe under circumstances like that, sitting in your living room, uh, you know, uh, you've either got a problem or we refer you to a psychologist so that you can overcome that feeling, right? We consider it pathological. If you, if your life really is such that you can't feel safe in your living room, uh, you know, you can't, Sustain yourself that, that way for very long before you start to behave very strangely. Uh, but if you take like a, you know, a mother fox in her den with her pups, and her den is her home, that's the safest place that she's ever going to be. Uh, but there's no safety there. Outside that hole, there are things out there looking for her, always. And if one of them comes through that hole into her den, that is it. It's over. And so wild animals can't relax. Not really, and neither can gorilla fighters. It's always just a matter of chance that the people looking for you see you before you see them. And this kind of chronic, ambient background stress over a long enough period of time, it, it has a way of turning men into something more like animals. You know, jumpy, reactive, aggressive, and, and violent sometimes. And the environment in Vietnam took its toll on the men physically and psychologically. A quote from veteran Philip Caputo's great book, A Rumor of War, is embedded in this larger quote by author Howard Jones, quote, War can arouse a psychopathic violence in men of seemingly normal impulses, but the type of war waged in Vietnam deteriorated into an absolute savagery that was unlike any other conflict. American lives were at stake in an environment where he could not be sure who or where the enemy was. Fighting in Indian country, Indian country is another name U.S. troops called VC-controlled territory, fighting in Indian country with no battle lines against a ghost-like guerrilla army with no uniforms that hid among the populace and employed a labyrinth of jungle trails and tunnels unnerved American soldiers. Anyone Vietnamese was responsible for their plight, or so they came to believe during endless hours in the heat, humidity, and incessant pounding rain of the monsoon season. The dry season was no better. Long patrols, trudging forward with heavy backpacks that tugged in the opposite direction while worrying whether their M16 assault rifles, which frequently malfunctioned, would work at crunch time. And all this in temperatures that soared to a hundred degrees and humidity that trailed not far behind. Sweat-drenched clothing, sweatbands on foreheads, pressing forward through clouds of dust or groin-high grass, or hacking through the bush with its towering bamboo and banana trees. Wire-like wait-a-minute vines and razor-sharp elephant grass that could rise up fifteen feet in height. No one could see more than three feet ahead. In Vietnam... Misery came in many forms for soldiers like Cali and Medina. Whether during the advance or waiting in ambush in foxholes or brush, they fought a relentless war against flies, mosquitoes, fire ants, spiders, chiggers, centipedes, leeches, 
ticks, honeybees, rats, snakes, and every other pest of nature that walked, crawled, or flew. The monsoon season brought some relief from the stifling heat, but that was of little consolation to soldiers slogging through the mud and muck while being hammered by the monotonous and seemingly unending rain. Massive flooding churned up scores of snakes, many of them poisonous, slithering amid a sticky lava-like mud that bogged down everything and everyone in its path, particularly those already debilitated by trench foot, jungle rot, blackwater fever, malaria, and dysentery. One day, on a routine patrol, Charlie Company walked into a minefield, which they only discovered when somebody stepped on one. It turned out that the whole area was filled with mines, and as soon as the first one blew, someone else seemed to blow up every time they took a step. But you're out in the open, right? So you're, and, and your friends are dying, so you can't just lie there and not move. And the men of Charlie Company, they were a solid unit, and they cared about each other. So they were jumping up and running to help their wounded friends, and then boom, another man sent flying in one direction. His leg flies in the other direction. Someone jumps up and goes to help him. Boom, another man down. People are screaming and calling out, Medic! Medic! One soldier, Bobby Wilson, and it's just awful. You look pictures of this kid, and he looks like a baby. I mean, he, he looks like a sandy-haired child. Uh, Bobby Wilson trips a bouncing Betty, which is a, it's a device that shoots up its ordnance about three feet in the air before it explodes. And Medina sees him hit by this bouncing Betty, and he just goes charging across the field. His men say that he just completely oblivious to the danger, totally fearless, running across the field, shouting orders at his men as he's making his way to what's left of Bobby Wilson. Later on, Medina described how he found Wilson. He said, quote, He was split, as if somebody had taken a cleaver right up from his crotch to his chest cavity. I've never seen anything so unreal in my entire life. We took a poncho, spread it out, the medic started to pick him up under his legs. I reached under his arms, placed him onto the poncho, and we'd set him on top of another mine. End quote. And Bobby Wilson's body just flew apart, knocking back Medina and the medic and covering them in the young soldier's gore. When finally the field is cleared, Charlie Company had suffered over two dozen casualties and they still had not made contact with an enemy that they could fight. After that day in the minefield, Charlie Company changed. A dark, dark mood came over this group of young men who a month or two ado- ago had, 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 you know, they were having fun handing out candy to children in the villages they visited. Not anymore. See, the villages, the, the villagers knew where these mines were. They knew where the booby traps were. Charlie Company knew that they knew because the villagers were never blown up by them and all those hours and days that they'd be walking through those same jungles and working in those same fields where American soldiers were dying every day. And sometimes they also knew the villagers were the ones planting them, including the women and even the children. And so now when the men would come through a village... They weren't handing out candy to the kids. What was that look that woman just gave you? Did, you? did you just imagine that, or was it a smirk? Was it a smirk because she knew where that mine was that blew up your buddy this morning? Maybe she was the one that put it there. Maybe I didn't see a look at all, but wait. 
maybe I did. You know, this is this is what happens. This is unfortunately how insurgent wars tend to go. Wars where a regular military can't tell the difference between enemy and civilian, and often the civilians are the only people around on whom they can vent their frustrations and fears. It's it's very difficult to win these wars. I mean, in the modern era, it's damn near impossible because the commanders and the political leaders have very different needs than the men on the ground do. Command needs to win hearts and minds of the local population, but the soldiers, on some level, need the people to fear them. And when you walk into a village in the morning, you want the people to know that if I lose another one of my friends to a landmine as soon as I step outside this village, I'm going to be back here. And that's going to be bad, bad news for you. And so the next time a group of VC fighters shows up in the evening wanting to use your village for an overnight stay, you might want to think long and hard about who you fear more. And now, this is me talking. I'm not justifying this. I'm just telling you how it is. And this is why discipline is absolutely the most important thing in war, especially in an insurgency, for, for a regular military in an insurgency. Not morality. You know, not doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Forget about that. It's a bad joke in a place where bombers are incinerating whole forests just to deprive an enemy militia of a place to hide or where people are digging pits full of sharp sticks for you and your friends to fall into and get impaled on. Okay, there's no morality or immorality here. There's discipline and indiscipline. After... Weeks and months of experiences like the one in the minefield. Maybe you're still not the type who would abuse a civilian. But maybe you're just a little bit less likely to stop the guy who is. And that's all it takes. That's how it starts. And that's why discipline is everything. You know, men in war are so revved up and on the edge that they have to be able to look. They can't, you can't trust your own. It's not entirely true. There's some men who are able to stay centered, but in general, these men, especially young men, they've got to be able to look to their officers and their NCOs for where the boundaries are, because by the very nature, by by, by the very nature of what you're being asked to go over there and do, you're being asked to do things that are completely outside the moral universe that you've lived in your entire life. And so when those boundaries aren't set up and enforced, that's when savagery takes over from a book by author Nick Terse called Kill Anything That Moves, quote, As the days went on, this is after the minefield incident, as the days went on, the situation in Charlie Company continued to degenerate. As one soldier put it, first you'd stop the people, question them, and let them go. Second, you'd stop the people, beat up an old man, and let them go. Third, you'd stop the people, beat up an old man, and then shoot him. Fourth, you'd go and wipe out a village. On March 14, 1968, after a booby trap killed one soldier and severely wounded two others, members of the unit went on a rampage through several hamlets. They beat up a villager on a bicycle, assaulted children, and set upon an unarmed woman. In a letter home to his parents, a soldier in Charlie Company describes it. 
Quote, Dear Dad, how's everything with you? One of our platoons went on a routine patrol today and came across a 155mm round that was booby-trapped. It killed one man, blew the legs off two others, and injured two more. On On their way back to the LZ, they saw a woman working in the fields. They shot and wounded her. Then they kicked her to death and emptied their magazines into her head. It was murder... I'm ashamed of myself for not trying to do something about it. It's not the first time, Dad. I've seen it many times before. My faith in my fellow man is all shot to hell. I just want the time to pass, and I just want to come home. Saturday, we're being dropped in by air to an NBA stronghold. Don't expect any letters for a while. Please keep writing them. I love and miss you and Mom. End quote. The stronghold that soldier was about to be dropped into was just outside the Sommi village in the area called Pinkville, and his platoon was set to assault a hamlet known to the Americans as Me Lai 4. The evening before the assault, the men of Charlie Company are, they are very keyed up, okay? They are, they are wound up, they're frightened because... You know, they were told that they'd be facing 200 to over 400 hardened enemy from the VC local 48th battalion. They're they're excited because they're finally getting the drop on the Vietnamese that they've been chasing all over Quang Nai province this whole time. They've been watching their friends bleed out for months and they're finally going to get their hands on the men responsible for it. They also just wanted to prove themselves. You remember, these are young men. Many of them very young. These kids are 18 to 22 years old. And many of them are just out of high school. This will be their first combat encounter and, and their first chance to really engage the enemy, to fight. And like most young men, behind the layers of fear and duty and aggression, there's just a basic ache to prove yourself. And they wanted to prove themselves as a unit as well. I mean, you know, just it's a... Well... Try to imagine it. I mean, you just put yourself in their position. Months of dead friends and the enemy slipping away. And now the next morning, you'd be taken in by Hilo to a landing zone just outside a village. And it was time to show the Viet Cong that the men they'd been killing had friends. And now their friends were here for revenge. You know, there's a strong element of honor, even, in vengeance. The duty that you have to people you love to ensure that their killers or people who hurt them, they don't get to walk away free as if they killed an insect or a dog or a human with no friends or family. Not this time, not with Charlie Company. The Viet Cong were about to find out just exactly who it was they'd been killing. They were to be dropped in first thing the next morning. According to military intelligence, it's a market day. I mentioned that before. So all the civilians will have left the area. The hamlets themselves were declared free fire zones. Anyone still present, they were told, is an enemy. Callie's first platoon was to organize quickly and make an immediate assault straight through the first hamlet, coming from west to east, straight through the middle. Second platoon would come in just behind them, coming in through the northwest to mop up a little bit, followed by Medina rolling in with third platoon, his force coming in through the southwest, all of them pushing east, east, east. Medina wants his men in an assault mentality. 
Okay, uh, you know they're not going there to fight; they're going there to assault this enemy. Colonel Orrin Henderson, the brand new commander of 11th Brigade, preparing for his first combat mission in that role, he emphasized Medina. He wanted to see Charlie Company quote go in there aggressively, close with the enemy, and wipe them out for good. A message that Medina amplified and conveyed to his own men. Medina wants them in a mindset where if they hear a sound off to one side, they're not jumping to take cover. They're looking for the source of the sound so they can kill it. The VC unit they'd be fighting had been around a long time, and they are absolutely no joke. Okay, if the American tactics are effective, the VC will have to stand and fight, and everybody expects a mini Stalingrad out there in the jungle. The riflemen are ordered to pack a triple basic load, dropping unnecessary weight to make room for 540 rounds of ammunition instead of the usual 180. Now, everybody knows that there may be a few civilian stragglers, a few people who, who, who didn't leave the village, but Medina just he doesn't want his inexperienced men cluttering up their minds worrying about that. You know, this is their first time going into combat, and they're about to have a big, big, big fight. Moreover, they've got to move fast, extremely fast, or else that 48th Battalion will just melt away into the jungle the way they always have. And they're not going to have the element of surprise either, because right beforehand, they're going to be getting lit up by, with Huey gunships and artillery. And, and, and more than anything, more than anything, Medina said, no matter what, they were told they, just, they must not allow anyone to get behind them. Alpha and Bravo Company had gotten into a situation where they allowed the enemy to fan out and get behind them a bit, and they suffered a lot of casualties back in February. They were not to let that happen. If they ended up crowded together in the village, taking fire from multiple directions in the jungle roundabout, it could get really ugly really fast. So the rules are move fast, do not allow yourself to be held up, and do not let anything get behind you. They are not there to fight. They are there to assault this village and destroy this enemy, to destroy everything, to burn down the huts, destroy the food, contaminate the wells, and shoot the livestock, both to deny the enemy their future use and to send a message about what happens when you shelter Viet Cong or mess with Charlie Company. Answering questions about the rules of engagement in this free fire zone, Medina gave his men a simple injunction. Kill everything that moves. But there was one problem. The Viet Cong 48th local battalion was nowhere near the village Charlie Company is about to assault. They're 150 miles away in the western part of the province. In fact, there are no combatants in the village at all. The next morning... Just about a hundred men from Charlie Company are on helos being ferried to the LZ in three groups about a hundred to two hundred yards to the west of the village. On the way in, a few helos report taking AK fire from the jungle to the south of the village and that goes out of the radio so the men are told that they'll be jumping off the helos into a hot LZ meaning they'll be taking fire as they're getting out of the helicopters. The first group of helos carrying Callie's first platoon approaches the landing zone, already laying down heavy machine gun fire to try to suppress the enemy. It's really, really loud and very disorienting. And so as the men are jumping out of the helicopters, it's really hard to tell where the fire is coming from. They just 
you can imagine a bunch of machine, you know, mounted machine guns going off right next to you. It's just loud. That's all they know. And so they start laying down fire of their own into the village about 200 yards out. They start to see movement and they shoot at it. You know, they got to move fast. They got to go right now. The other helos are coming in behind them and they cannot afford to get pinned down out in the open, taking fire from an enemy concealed by the village of the jungle. The men are shouting and getting themselves organized. Go, go, go. Get on the line. Let's get moving. And as they begin to push into the village, civilians start to come out of their houses to see what's going on. Some of them are showing the Americans their empty hands and repeating the one phrase of English that experience has forced them to memorize. No VC. No VC. And others are just wandering out in their early morning pajamas to see what the fuss is about. American soldiers had come through before plenty of times, and the Vietnamese didn't seem to expect trouble despite the earlier gunfire. So the Americans start to slow down. First platoon looks around a little bit. You know, There's a pause, maybe a momentary stillness as these young American boys, many of whom had never left their home state before the Army, look at the guns they're holding in their hands 10,000 miles away from home, and they look at each other and at the Vietnamese, and the Vietnamese look at them. And for some reason... I've become fascinated with this pause, with this moment. It only lasts a few seconds, but I always imagine the men... Yeah, it, it only lasts a few seconds, but like I always imagine the men stuck there for the rest of their lives. You know, unable to ever stop thinking or dreaming about those few seconds before everything that made them human fell apart. And that pause is shattered when... A few of the crazy guys in the platoon, every unit has them. You know, a certain percentage of the male population are clinical psychopaths, and they can be very effective soldiers if they're well-managed and held to discipline, but that is not the case here. So a few soldiers said, hey, they said it was a free, free fire zone. Let's rock and roll, baby. And they just start gunning down these Vietnamese civilians. And with that, it just spun out of control. Everything broke down. I've tried to understand what that means. I've tried hard enough that, I'll be honest, uh, well, it just hasn't been fun. Like I said, it's done a little damage. Um, I've, I've gone to some pretty dark places trying to understand how a young guy who loved his family and was kind to people at home and had never been in trouble or ever inclined to violence, how he responds to the first few murders by raising his own gun and shooting an old man in the face. I, you know, it's just, it's not possible that we happen to gather up a bunch of psychopaths and, all, and put them all in one unit. These were normal men. You read about it and you listen to them and there can just be no doubt about it. They were, they were you and me. And if you say you would never do anything like this, the answer is not, yes, you would. The answer is neither would they. So I try to put myself there and puzzle it out. And, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm in that place. I'm one of these men, my friends, people I know well. I look around, people that have risked their lives from me, for me. I, I'm watching them shoot these people, shooting women and children. And so I ask myself, if I was there and I wanted to stop it all, what would I do? How would I do it? There's no one to report it to. The NCOs and the officers are all shooting too. And 
you know, do we want to get into the complications of trying to confront a man armed with an automatic weapon that you just saw gun down a mother holding her infant and then stomp on the infant to kill it? Do I shoot him? Do I shoot this American soldier? Do I shoot everybody in the platoon? I mean, there are three dozen guys there. And then what? (laughs) I mean, and remember, you just got here. You don't know that the enemy is completely out of the area. They haven't figured that out yet. So the enemy could be up ahead hiding in the next part of the village or in the houses around you, getting in position to open up as you're sitting there trying to figure out what to do. And Medina's on the radio screaming at you guys to get moving. You know, do you run away and refuse to be a part of all this? You coward? Is that what you do? You coward? You know, I mean, these are the thoughts that I imagine run through people's heads, some of their heads at least. You know, while you're standing there trying to get a grip, you've watched a dozen of your buddies shoot people, and now it's done. You know, and again, it's probably not even like all this is actually going through your head. It's it's too overwhelming and happening too fast. And pretty soon you start to realize that you're one of the only people who hasn't fired his weapon. And do you really want to have the only clean hands in a unit full of murderers? You know, it's not like a group of child murderers is going to hesitate to get rid of the one person that they have to worry about telling what they've done. And it's loud and insane, and you have to move fast and not get stalled out, and under no circumstances can you let anybody get behind you, so maybe you raise your weapon and you fire. And then the man next to you, with doubts of his own, runs through that same process that I just described, only now you're the one shooting a family. And he's worried about you thinking that he's suspicious for not having fired his weapon yet. I I don't know. I don't know how this goes down. I really don't. But... What I do know is I can't let myself off the hook by imagining that these were men of a different substance than me. Because it's just not true. It's just not. So, I mean, I've spent the last weeks trying to put myself in that place. And not as the heroic dissident. Not imagining that I would have been there opposed, you know, just completely appalled at the whole thing and wanting to stop. But trying to be one of the average soldiers there. Just another guy who raises my rifle and puts a bullet through the head of someone's grandmother. And for weeks I've been doing this, you know. And to be honest, I don't feel like I have gained anything from it at all. I don't think I understand myself better. I don't feel like I understand other people better. I I don't feel like I've gained anything from it. I really just feel like shit from it, to be honest with you. You know, and mainly that's because every time I push it far enough... I find myself feeling compassion for a bunch of men who mercilessly slaughtered almost 500 innocent people. And compassion is the last thing that I want to feel about any of this. One Vietnamese survivor who was a child at the time remembered that day, quote, Around 8.30, three American soldiers came to my house. They pushed six of us down into the shelter and threw a hand grenade in behind us. And then they used their machine guns to shoot us down. My entire family was blown into pieces. The only person left alive was me. And another survivor remembered, quote, Suddenly an American soldier came in carrying a gun. I saw my father collapse, and then my mother, my grandfather and my grandmother. They all continued to fall. My brother, younger than me, only three years old, suddenly they blasted his head open. 
one shot and his head blasted onto the floor, end quote. An army photographer, um, I think his name's Haberly, Ronald Haberly, a uh, photographer attached to Charlie Company, he followed the initial assault into the village. So it's one of the crazy things back then is, you know, you don't see a lot of nasty footage coming out of the Iraq or Afghanistan wars these days. Um, you don't see stuff like the little girl running naked from the napalm attack in Vietnam or, or, or the, you know, the famous photo of the South Vietnamese official putting the pistol to the North Vietnamese uh, soldier's head. You just, you don't, you don't get that often. But back then we had army photographers at My Lai. We sent army reporters with them. Um, it's very different today. Anyway, uh, the army photographer attached to Charlie Company's following the initial assault into the village, taking pictures of everything he sees, just, you know, probably using his camera as a shield a little bit to kind of separate himself from everything that's going on, maybe. And he comes in and he approaches a group of Vietnamese women and children that are huddled together with several American soldiers standing around them. And if you're not driving uh, at the moment, I know a lot of people listen while they're driving, but if you're not, and don't do it if you are, if you're not driving, go to Google and search for My Lai Massacre, Woman in Red, and go look at the images. The first few images that come up will show you the picture that he took. It's uh, it's not gory or anything. They're all alive. They're standing up. It's uh, It's a middle-aged woman, just a tiny little thing, and a red top and a black skirt. And she's standing in front of several other women and children, kind of trying to protect them. And she is just absolutely terrified. Um, I, you know, I've been staring at this picture, and the look on her face is just burned into my brain at this point. It's just, it's so awful. I mean, she's standing in front of the rest of the group, between them and the Americans, doing whatever pointless thing she can to protect them. And a younger, taller, taller woman is, is behind her with her arms around the first woman's waist and her head buried into her shoulder. And then there are a few other people behind them and one of them off to the left. And I mean it, if you can, go look up the picture. Um, Milai Massacre, Woman in Red, and just look at the first few images. Uh, there are plenty of pictures of the torn up dead bodies and stuff, but this one, it's just... It just affects me, you know. It's um, behind the two women I just mentioned. To the left of the picture is a little girl, maybe five years old, in a white top and a black skirt. And look at her face. You know, she's got, well, I mean, she's got the look on her face you would expect a five year old girl to have when a bunch of men show up to her village and start gunning everybody that she knows down in the streets and are now surrounding her and her family. You know, that's the look she has on her face. And whatever you're picturing in your mind, it doesn't do it justice. And so uh, the photographer, Haberly, approaches this group, and one of the men calls out that a photographer is coming, so they all kind of back off a bit. He snaps that picture, and he keeps moving, moves past them. And as soon as he moves past them, just hears a bunch of gunshots, and he swings around in time to see the whole group of people just falling down. They just murdered all of those cowering, terrified women, and the little girls just all blown apart. 
Now, around this time, second platoon is coming in, following Callie's first platoon, and they're they're coming into the northwest corner of the village, out of the visual range of first platoon, really not able to see everything that's been going on. As they come in, three children, about seven to nine years old, run up to the approaching Americans, and they're smiling and holding out their hands, and they're, and they're yelling, chop, 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 because that's what the Vietnamese kids had learned would usually get the American soldiers to give them treats. But those three children were just gunned down. And as second platoon starts to move into the village, they're breaking up into squads. And their second platoon's jumpy. You know, they're wheeling around and firing wildly at sounds and movements. And anyway, one of these squads approaches a brick house. There's nine people huddled together, holding each other on the front porch. Um, the three men, three women, all elderly, two kids and a little baby. They'd all been ordered out of the house by the six Americans that were now standing a few yards off from the porch. No VC, no VC, the family pleaded as five of the soldiers flipped their M16s to automatic and the sixth took his time loading his M60 machine gun with a hundred-round box mag and punctuating the relative silence with the clank of his bolt closing. And then, you know, this is the kind of thing that you just wonder exactly what's going on. They're just shooting from the hip, not even aiming, just spraying multiple magazines, the squad just lights up this group of Vietnamese for almost a full minute. Uh, Totally unnecessary, just practically tearing their bodies apart. Earlier, a few minutes ago, I tried to speculate about what a situation like this might have been like for someone who was opposed to all this, or for somebody who had at least doubts, or, or even for somebody who was overwhelmed or weak or confused. But events like this don't happen without monsters. You know, and there were monsters. Uh, second platoon had a real monster. A big guy, 6'3 or so, 230 pounds maybe. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed monster from Kansas. Everybody in Charlie Company knew him and, and feared him for his constant, perpetual anger and crazy temper. Just one of those guys. You know, a guy like this, it's a guy who walks into a situation like the one unfolding... And, you know, the world slows down. It lights up for him. A second platoon moves in. He snatches up a child and throws him to the ground, starts beating and kicking him. And when an old man about half his size tries to intervene, he kills the old man and then finishes beating the child to death. He walks up behind a woman and blows her apart by firing a 40-millimeter grenade into her back and then snatches an old man and using his bowie knife he slashes and slices him up moves on he finds a group of soldiers surrounding 10 Vietnamese and they're trying to figure out what to do with them but when the monster arrives they just line them up and shoot them all down second platoon by this point starting to bump up against first platoon's area of operations and so the monster sees some first platoon men interrogating a family that they pulled out of a house and they're demanding to know, where are the VC? Where are the VC? And so the monster sees this, and he runs over shouting, Kill them all! Kill them all! He tries to grab one of the first platoon soldier's rifles, but because he doesn't want to use his grenade launcher at short range, I guess, but the first platoon guy holds his ground and won't give it up, and so he takes another man's M16 and shouts, Don't let none of them live! And he shoots the parents, and then he puts the gun to the two girls' heads and 
shoots them and their bodies fall and their brains mingle in the dirt and you know and he starts to walk back to his squad and as he makes his way past the first house a man walks out to see what's happening turns shoots him down his wife and kids watch him hit the deck and so they run out to try to help him shoots them down you know these people exist these people exist too Anyway, back in 1st Platoon, Callie's trying to keep his men moving. I mean, again, remember the rules. Like that That's really all he's repeating in his head. Repeating Medina's order just over and over to keep moving, drive the enemy back, do not let them fan out, and whatever you do, don't let anyone get behind you. Keep moving, drive the enemy back, don't let them fan out, don't let anyone behind you. Keep moving, drive the enemy back. You know, by this point, many soldiers are just firing at anything they see. Not all of them, but, but many of them. The photographer, Ronald Haberly, um, you know, this is his first hard contact with enemy, and he's watching this, and he's just completely in shock, and he tries to describe it later, and he describes it with the memory of somebody who was in shock. He says, it was just shoot, 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 shoot at anything. I don't care what moved. I mean, it's just a person would come out of a hut, bang, shoot. It was just complete carnage there that day. Now... For an effective sweep through a village to do what it is they're actually supposed to be trying to do, a platoon's got to maintain a tight formation and they've got to work together. Uh, but it, it almost immediately when they entered the village, that just completely came apart. There were too many civilians to control and some of the men were wandering off in smaller groups with murder in their eyes. It was just nobody had any control of the situation. Within just a few minutes of entering the village, 1st Platoon had accumulated about 50 civilians, and, and they'd rounded them up into a group, and you know, almost all of them, women and children and old people, and they're terrified and crying, and, and you know, some of them are slow, they're little kids and old people, and so they're trying to get them moving through the village, trying to get them through west to east to come out the eastern edge. Move fast, don't stop, don't let anyone get behind you. you know, but this group is too large and unwieldy, and so they're stalling out near the trail junction around the middle of the village. And Callie's looking around, and he just he can't move fast enough to satisfy Medina with this group of people, but he can't leave them behind either. Nearby, a woman carrying an infant and accompanied by a toddler comes out of her house and startles two Americans, so they swing around and fire, and they wound her. They don't, they don't kill her, and so they send her over to Callie to join this group of Vietnamese civilians that it's, that it's accumulating and after they send her off they turn and they 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 talk about seeing a very old woman you know old old woman struggling to walk down a trail because she's been shot by an M79 40 millimeter grenade launcher only the grenade had not exploded and it was embedded in her stomach that's just an image you know it's just it's one of those there's a few a few of these images in here, and most of them honestly aren't even the ones that are over-the-top gory. It's the idea of somebody's great-grandmother trying to struggle down a trail with an unexploded grenade embedded in her guts, you know. Around that time, two young privates, you know, just two 18-year-old kids. I, I just I can't get away from that, especially now. You know, maybe when I was 18, it seemed normal, but... Well, not not all this, but just the idea of an 18-year-old acting like an adult. Now that I'm a little older, it 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 it, it makes me sad. I know that's uh, not necessarily the appropriate feeling 
for these people, but there's something to there's something something of sadness to it when I think about it. So these two young privates, 18 year old kids, they burst into a hut, and in there they find three small children clinging to an old man and an old woman, both of whom had already been wounded. And so one of the privates pulls his 45 and places it against the old man's head and says, you know, something about this being a mercy killing. You know, he's already, this is, this is to put him out of his misery or something. And he blows his brains out in front of his children. A sergeant uh, looks into a hooch and sees several women and a bunch of children. So he pulls the pin on a grenade and throws it in all over the place. They're looking into huts and hooches and houses and down into bunkers. And if they see people, they're just pulling grenades and throwing them in. Uh, near the center of the village, there's a small Buddhist temple and 20 women and kids, they were burning incense and they were kneeling down praying because what else are you going to do in the midst of this? And a group of Americans comes up behind them and executes them all at close range. 20 people, 20 women and kids. Another soldier's pushing an old man down a trail by himself, just roughly shoving him and kicking him. And, you know, the old man's doing what he says. He's trying to comply, but he's shoving him roughly. And then suddenly, without any reason at all, the soldier just shoves his bayonet into the old man's back. And for some reason, you know, this is another one that sticks with me more than some of the others. Um, you know, it just... uh you know, he's he's not in the center of it all. He's not caught up in the madness. You know, he's off to the side a bit, set apart from the rest of the group, not caught up in the chaos of it all. You know, he, he he's pushing the old man down the trail by himself, and the old man's complying, and, and the old man's not facing him. He's looking away, so the soldier's there with his own thoughts. And, and since the man's complying, you know, presumably the soldier had his wits about him in that moment. And I imagine at least, and he could have shot him, you know, I mean, that's not good, but I mean, he could have shot him, but instead he stuck him with his bayonet. And I almost imagine him as if he was walking there thinking that, you know, he had seen in movies and heard stories about sticking someone with a blade. And now here he was, you know, with a man in front of him, he's walking and he can do whatever he wants. He's got a blade. There it is, right there. He can stick it in. No, nothing will happen to him. He can do it just to do it. He'll, he can do it just so he can know once and for all what it feels like in your hands to stick a blade in someone. Whether it slides in easily or if the body resists it. Or, But no, no, no. That, that's crazy. I, I can't do that. Wait, of course I can. Look around. Look at what's happening all around me. I can do whatever I want. No, 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 this is crazy. And then, for no reason at all, if you're an outsider watching this, not hearing the angel and devil at war on his shoulders, he just sticks it in. And the old man falls to the ground, and then the soldier finishes him off. And then that soldier walks over to a cowering young boy and lifts him up and throws him down a well and follows it up by throwing a grenade in after him. That happened too. Now, um, back with the large group. The Americans in direct range of Cali are pulling people out of their houses and they're adding them to the growing 
group of civilians that's being pushed west to east through the village. A Vietnamese survivor just remembered that, you know, they started to take us all away. Everyone in my house, they took us to leave. And a female survivor said that they were, you know, they were really rushing them. I held one of my children and led the other one. I walked with them until they told us to stop. They made us walk from inside the village, across the rice fields. I told my kids to go with me. I dragged my kids, but they still hit us, kicked us. Now, Medina's at his command post outside the village. Um, And he's getting angry because things aren't moving as quickly as he'd planned. And so he gets on the radio with Callie, wanting to know what's going on. Medina says, where are you? And Callie says, I'm on the eastern edge. I'm checking the bunkers out. Medina says, well, damn it, I didn't tell you to check them out. Get your men in position. Callie, I have a lot of Vietnamese here. Medina, get rid of them. Get your men in position now. Callie, Roger. And so Callie goes up to a young soldier named Paul Meadlow, who's standing guard over the group of civilians now that they've made it over to the eastern edge of the hamlet near an irrigation ditch that kind of serves as a barrier. You know what to do with them, don't you? Callie said to Meadlow, and Meadlow said that he did. And right then, a few meters out of the way, off the trail, Callie notices one of his men alone with a young Vietnamese woman who's holding tightly to her young child. And this soldier, this American soldier, is holding the woman tightly by a chunk of her wound-up hair, and he's forced her to her knees to perform oral sex on him. And he's ensuring her compliance by putting the barrel of his gun to her four-year-old son's head. Mm -hmm. And so, sprinting over, Callie screams at him to get his pants back up and get back into position. And Callie didn't know probably that by this time already at least nine women and girls had been sexually assaulted by the Americans. Later on, Callie explained why he behaved, why he reacted the way he did, uh... To seeing that, he said, quote, If a GI is getting a blowjob, he isn't doing his job. He isn't destroying communism. He isn't doing what we're paying him for. He isn't combat effective, end quote. Okay. So anyway, there are several helicopters overhead. Some of them are providing support, and three of them are circling counterclockwise over the action just to observe the whole situation unfold. So people are watching this. There's a major general on one of those observation helicopters. One of the helicopters providing support belongs to Hugh Thompson. And seeing the large group of women and children assembled over near the ditch, he lands his helicopter and approaches one of the soldiers guarding him. And he says, these are civilians. We've got to help them. And the soldier just looks at him and says something, you know, like, sure, we'll help him out of their misery or something like that. And Thompson really doesn't he doesn't really fully grasp what's going on right now. Um, you know, I mean, how would you just, it's a big conclusion to jump to. It's just, he just doesn't want to believe it. He's trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so he just repeats the order. We got to help these civilians. And then he goes back and gets into his chopper to get back in the air. After Callie had gotten the rapist back into position, his radio man let him know that Medina's back on the line already again, wanting to know what's going on. Medina says, what are you doing now? Callie, I'm ready. I'm getting ready to go. Now, damn it. I told you to get your men in position. Now. Why did you disobey my damn order? I have these bunkers here. To hell with the bunkers. And these people here, they aren't moving too swiftly. I don't want that crap. Now, damn it. Waste all those goddamn people and get in damn position. 
Callie. Roger. So after trying to pull his men together for about 15 minutes, Callie returns to the large group of Vietnamese civilians guarded by Milo just as Thompson's helicopter is getting back off the ground. There are about 70 or 80 frightened people sitting there on the ground, and the soldier whom Callie had caught sexually assaulting the girl was standing next to Milo now guarding the civilians, and the Vietnamese were all sitting there and just waiting to see what was going to happen. Callie said to Milo as he comes up, he's pissed off, he's angry, and he says, how come you ain't killed them yet? And Milo responds that he didn't know that that's what he was supposed to do. He thought Callie just meant that he was supposed to continue guarding them. No, Callie said. So, you know, he says, no, I want them dead. And so Milo, he's just a kid. Milo and the other soldier look at each other, and then they kind of step back to stand with a few other soldiers that are nearby, kind of... You know, it's an interesting reaction, but I, I, it's, I understand it in a way. And so Callie says, come here. And they kind of stand. And he says, come on, we'll line them up. We'll kill them. And the other soldier, the, the rapist, uh, he said he didn't want to waste ammunition for his main weapon, the grenade launcher. Um, it's kind of an excuse he came up with because he didn't want to do this. And so he said uh, he'd take his grenade launcher and he'd go back along the tree line to stop. You know, he'd be a backstop, basically, against anybody that tried to escape. But Milo didn't have an excuse. And so he finally stepped forward and joined Callie on the line. And Callie looked hard at him. When I say fire, fire at them. About ten feet from the group, Callie and Milo set their weapons to automatic and they just start spraying magazines into the helpless Vietnamese as mothers scramble to cover their children, and the children screamed, and the old men and women are wailing. After about a minute of shooting, Milo stops firing, and he's crying now, and so he starts to walk off, and he tries to shove his weapon into the hands of another soldier, and he says, you shoot them. But the other soldier puts his hands up, he refuses to take it, and then he pushes the weapon back, And points at Callie and says, let him shoot him. He looks like he's enjoying it. Right at that point, half dozen children or so began to stand up. They'd been shielded and covered by the adults' bodies. They're starting to pull themselves out out from under the bloody remains of those adults who'd protected them. They're standing up and they're crying and pulling at their mothers and grandparents to get up off the ground. And so Callie reloads his M16 and pop, 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 just picks them off one by one as the backstop soldier, the rapist, is screaming at him to stop. And then after that, after he kills those children, another dozen or so women and kids kind of clamber up to their feet and start stumbling toward the tree line. And so Callie screamed at his man, don't let him get away, kill them, kill them, but the soldier with the grenade launcher, he aims it over their heads on purpose and just fires off into the jungle and you know, says he did it on accident. In a later interview, Callie said uh, he, you know, he addressed, addressed this part and he's a, he's a hard guy to figure out, but he said, quote, on babies, everyone's really hung up. Those on the outside could not understand what was at stake, and yet always cast the most severe judgment. But babies, they exclaim, the little innocent babies, 
Americans have been fighting in Vietnam for 10 years. If we're in Vietnam another 10, if your son is killed by those babies, you'll cry at me. Why didn't you kill those babies that day? End quote. So this killing would go on for four hours, and the Americans would not suffer a single casualty that day. Several of them even stopped in the middle of it all uh, you know, to, to take lunch. So there was no danger here. This was not a fight. This was not a fight at all. Shortly after lifting off from where the civilians had been assembled by the ditch, Hugh Thompson and his helicopter crew heard firing. And so they swung around and they saw that Callie and Milo were shooting all those people. His door gunner, one of his door gunners, uh, Lawrence Colburn, remembered that, you know, Thompson just did not want to believe what he was seeing. And so he kept trying to give the men on the ground the benefit of the doubt. But after the mass murder at the ditch, he was just beside himself. And he's calling out over the radio that civilians are being killed down there. And when he didn't get much of a response over the radio, he turns to his crew they're just young kids at this point, and uh, he says, we got to do something. And are they with him? And they said that they were with him. And so down below, they see a group of about a dozen women and kids, maybe a few more, running along a hedgerow toward a bunker, being chased by a group of American soldiers. Thompson estimated that those Vietnamese had about 30 seconds to live, and so this man, you know, this this great man, a hero, and the crew of heroes in his helicopter they swing down to land near the bunker as the people are jumping inside Thompson is preparing to get out and he tells his crew I'm going out there if those American soldiers fire their weapons or try to get into that bunker kill them and so without drawing his own weapon Thompson gets out and he blocks the pursuing American soldiers from that bunker and Suddenly the Americans looked up and they recognized the helicopter and its mounted machine guns pointed right at them. And one of those men later described that moment almost as if it was like waking up from a dream. Uh, and so the men turned and left and Thompson called a friend on the radio, Dan Malyans. Uh, he was a pilot of a Huey gunship in the area. He told him he needed his help right now. Now gunships do not land alone in unauthorized areas without support. It just doesn't happen. But Malayans took his Huey in and landed in that place to rescue those people. And it's just an, this is one of the things that just keeps standing out to you when you, when you uh, see the pictures and videos of this stuff. You cannot believe it when you see pictures of Malayans from back then, this, this Huey pilot. I mean, he looks like a little boy. He looks like he's 15 years old. Uh, it, and yet he flew in there when his friend called, and he landed his helo without authorization, and they got those people out of there. They had to leave in two groups because there was only so much room, and so Thompson and his crewmen, Lawrence Colburn and Glenn Andriata, I haven't said a lot of names in this for a reason, uh, but I'm saying their names because these men are heroes. Um, those three stayed there to guard the Vietnamese until they were taken to safety by Malayans. Once they were back in the air, Thompson flew back to survey the damage at the irrigation ditch, and the damage was total. Bodies and blood filled the muddy water, but one of the crew noticed movement, so they touched down again, and uh, they saw a child, a little boy, was moving. 
I've read in some places it was a little girl, but uh, it doesn't matter, I guess. The, uh, the door gunner, Colburn, remembers reaching down to pick the boy up by his clothes and that the only thing that was in his head as he reached down to do that was that he was worried that his buttons would give out and that the little boy would then fall back into the water among all the bodies. And the little boy, uh, you know, um, he remembers, quote, he's alive today. He, he, uh, he, he remembers back. He says, I looked up and saw a helicopter landing in the rice fields. I was really scared. Wasn't sure if they'd shoot again. But when I lifted my head, I saw three American soldiers approach, so I pretended to be dead. But the Americans, three of them, came down into the ditch. I looked up a second time, and they pulled me out. End quote. They carried that boy to their helicopter, and they flew him themselves out to Kuang Nai Hospital, which wasn't too far away if you went by air. They left him with a nun at the hospital, telling her that the boy likely had no parents or family left alive. Um, you know, years later, um, just as a little aside, I think it was CBS or NBC, um, whatever, whatever channel Mike Wallace was on, um, they did a, I want to say a 10 or 20 year anniversary. I think it was a, oh no, goodness, 1968. It was a 30 year anniversary. It was in 1998 of Mi and they actually got a hold of Hugh Thompson and they took him out to the area where it happened. And some of the villagers who were kids then, they still live in the same area. And uh, that little boy, uh, that little boy's there. And they, uh, they went there and he recognized Hugh Thompson. It's very powerful. You know, several people who were saved by him and his crew recognized him. And, you, you know, you get to see him interact with each other. It was a very beautiful thing, very moving, you know. Uh, so uh, they dropped that boy off at the hospital. And um, back in the village, finally, uh, the officers are trying to get a hold of the men. It's starting to spread a little bit that an American officer in a helicopter had come in and pointed guns at some men to get them to stop and few other things were happening and things were finally starting to slow down. The officers would order a ceasefire and the guns would go quiet and then someone would fire again somewhere and it would all start back up over for a time until another ceasefire was ordered and then it all repeated again and this went on for a while. But when the f finally the shooting stopped, uh, the few survivors, mostly a few children hidden away, they began to creep out. Um, one of them, who was a very young boy at the time, remembered uh, in an interview, and he's just weeping as he says this. Um, he remembers coming out at the end. He says, quote, My grandmother, I called to her, Grandma, Grandma. I thought she was almost dead. She raised her hand. She said, Grandma's here, dear, lying here. They shot me right in my arm. When I called to my sister, she was outside. She just lay there unconscious, but when she heard me call, she woke up and crawled over. The three of us held each other and cried. We were covered in blood. The village was burned. The wells were corrupted and the animals were killed. The food was destroyed and the bodies were burned. It was reported back to command that the Americans had won a great victory after a fierce firefight. 
killing 128 Viet Cong fighters and unfortunately, of course, catching 22 civilians in the crossfire. Commanding General Westmoreland congratulated the men on an outstanding job and back home, Stars and Stripes reported that U.S. infantrymen had killed 128 communists in a bloody day-long battle. In reality, they had... They had murdered. There's, I mean, no question about exactly what it was. They murdered. Numbers are a little fuzzy, but something close to 500 innocent people. A few whistleblowers reported um, what had happened that day up the chain of command, but it was just ignored. It would be a whole. It would be another year and a half before. Investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch brought the story to the American public, a contribution for which he was and still is by many people regarded as an anti-American communist sympathizer. In the end, the only high-ranking officer to even face charges was Colonel Orrin Henderson, commander of the 11th Brigade, but he was acquitted. Callie maintained to the very end that he was following orders and that he had done his job, but a court-martial found him guilty of murdering no fewer than 20 people himself and sentenced him to life in prison. But two days after the sentence was passed, President Nixon ordered Cali released and confined to house arrest during the appeal process. In August 1971, his sentence was reduced from life to 20 years. Captain Medina who was seen personally by Hugh Thompson's helicopter crew kicking a woman on the ground and then shooting her in the head. He denied giving the orders that virtually every man in the company agreed that he had given, and he was acquitted of all charges. Of the 26 men charged with the crime after the My Lai Massacre, only Lieutenant William Calley was ever convicted, and in the end, he served only three and a half years on house arrest before being paroled, and he walks free to this day. The Secretary of the Army was later quoted saying that Calley had been paroled because he had truly believed that he had been following orders. But Calley himself puts it slightly differently. Quote, personally, I didn't kill any Vietnamese that day. I mean personally. I represented the United States of America. I represented my country. End quote.
I told you guys, Daryl is the man. I'm very happy we had a chance to work together on this. And we are going to be working together on the next episode, because in the next episode we're going to draw the conclusions. You know, so far we have told two separate stories. I told you about the Sun Creek Massacre, he told you about Milai. In the next episode we're going to sit down and draw some of the conclusions about what does this all mean? What does it mean about human nature? What does it mean about psychology? What does it mean about choices? Why do some people end up making these horrible decisions and turn into monsters? Why do some people behave heroically in the most ugly circumstances? That's what we're going to be playing next. So you'll hear more from Daryl as I sit down with him for the next one. Having said this, let me give thanks to some folks. Let's start out with CNN Kennedys. You know the Kennedy name, you don't necessarily know their whole history. Watch the new CNN original series American Dynasties, The Kennedys. It is going to premiere on Sunday, March 11th, at 9pm Eastern, on CNN. The series is narrated by that amazing actor who's Martin Sheen, and is going to cover the what people mostly know about the Kennedys, you know, the, the fame of this probably most renowned American family. I mean, I really have a hard time thinking about too many families in American history who have left as much of a mark on the public imagination as the Kennedys. Definitely within the middle of the you know, latter part of the 20th century, for sure. There also, the series will include the home video from the Kennedy archives. will cover the lives, starting with the patriarch Joe Sr. and his uh, wife Rose. We'll cover the lives of their children. Joe Jr., Keek, Jack. We'll get into the whole story, you know, the career of both Jack and Bobby. You will, um, needless to say, when you mention the Kennedy's name, tragedy is never that far off. So we will, of course, explore the tragedy of both the Jack and Bobby assassinations, which are really one of some of the most dramatic public moments in American history. We'll dig into Jack and Jackie's marriage. We'll uh, talk about what happens and with the surviving sons of the Kennedy family. We'll really explore the both public and private life of these uh, most famous of American families. So check them out. It's on CNN, premiering on March 11th at 9pm Eastern. Um, I know I'm gonna tune in. I strongly recommend it. Also a big, big thank you to Blue Apron. Now, in the intro, I told you that I may have to have a knife fight with Savannah M in case she had already ate all of the things that Blue Apron sent for this week. Turns out I was wrong. She didn't eat it all. She just stashed it away in a way I didn't see. So my reward now will be to go sit down and have a Blue Apron meal. Quite excited about that. Check them out. They are uh, incredible. You know, the quality of their food is amazing. They are the leading meal kit delivery service in the United States. 
If you go on their website, you can take a look at all the recipes that they offer. They are, I still have to run into a single meal that was not good. I mean, I've liked every single one of them to different degrees, but every one was great. So check them out. They are, they are pretty flexible. You know, they offer 12 different recipes each week and customers can pick either two, three or four based on what best fits their schedule. Easiest thing to do to find out if you like it is try them out once. You know, Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also big thank you to Onnit and Atsusara, my regular sponsors. So... The Onnit website is a collection of so many different products that it's hard to even try to summarize them all because they are really all over the place, you know, from supplements to workout gear to all sort of other great stuff. So go check them out for yourself at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic uh, discount. And also, while you are at it, if you want to check out what else my sponsors offer, Datsusara at dsgear.com, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. They have an incredible range of hemp products. I use at least one of them every day, usually more than one. So check them out. Uh, quick shout out to Mark Blanchett for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level. If you guys are interested in joining, in you know, supporting the podcast via Patreon, there's a link in the episode notes. Also, big thank you to anybody who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link. And uh, what else should I say? Well, I'm sure there are other things I could tell you, but... The day is long, you guys have been through a lot listening to this story about Milai, so I'll just be quiet now and uh, look forward to you tuning in for the next one.